Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina Thursday morning, February 29, the day that doesn't exist three days, excuse me, three years out of four. It's leap year. 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. I woke up this morning with text that said, big win. I knew nothing about it. The Gamecock started at 830. I went to bed at about 830, so I didn't know yeah. anything. And I refused to start watching it. Cause I'll, I'll get into it. You know what I mean? And then I can't go to bed, can't go to sleep. So I just never turned to the, to the game. Woke up this morning. I'm on a text thread with some Gamecock faithful. Big win was the only words uh, that I saw. Now the real work begins as this weekend. I mean, this would be a good weekend to be a Gamecock fan. You've got three baseball games against your arch rival, and they're good. You've got a basketball game Saturday against a top 25 caliber team in, um, in Florida, so, it you know, if you're a Gamecock fan and like hanging around Gamecock athletics, this weekend will be a lot of fun. Um, I got corrected. I didn't know this. I mean, this is – I'm a little more passive about my, my fandom than I once was. It's Friday night in uh, Founders Park. It's Saturday at – what is it? Sagra? Sagra Park in, Sagra in Park Columbia. in Columbia. Right. And then Sunday in, in Clemson. So in a weird way, the Gamecocks kind of get two of three at home this year uh, instead of the neutral site game being in Greenville, which is not very neutral site if you're a Gamecock fan. And if you're a Clemson fan, how do you argue that another game in Columbia is a neutral site? Um, And I guess they're going to alternate one and the other. I emphatically stand by my decision that the best way to play baseball in South Carolina between the Gamecocks and Tigers is a midweek game in Columbia a midweek game in Clemson, and a three-game set in Myrtle Beach at home of the Myrtle Beach Pelicans. I mean, it would be just make it a big extravaganza. I mean, invite I mean, the Tigers and Gamecock, you know, alumni and old-timers and past legends play golf. Uh, you know, just come up with all bobsled racing. I don't know. Just come up with, <laughs> with whatever you need to. Bobsled. And kind of celebrate <laughs> Um, celebrate the that, that would be fun. I mean, I see what you're saying there. It'd be a lot of fun. They've got the hotel capacity. Oh, sure. You know, they, they've got the, a way to handle uh, a it big weekend built like for that. visitors yeah, there. I, mean, I just think it'd be a lot of fun to play that three-game set in, in Myrtle Beach. 843-661-0937 is a number. Um, big day yesterday for America First without doing anything election-related. Um, Senator Glenn McConnell. Uh, Mitch, Mitch McConnell, I'm sorry, Glenn McConnell was in the South Carolina State Senate when I was there. Senator Mitch McConnell announces that he's not going to seek leadership again. Um, I'm understanding that that was kind of a deal he had to make because they were about to force him out. And it really began, and this is a little bit encouraging to me, because we've argued this is a generational endeavor. Josh, I thought a lot about you this morning riding over. You don't have to shake the habits that I do. You don't have to shape the impact that the National Review and Wall Street Journal and George Wills of the world had on Republicanism, so to speak. I mean, you'll have to shake some others. I mean, there'll be other forces that integrate themselves into you making your political opinions or or persuasions. Uh, Rev and I, and I was a bit, I mean, not a bit, I was very passive about politics, but I still knew who George Will was. I mean, I still knew what the Reagan Revolution was, despite not uh, participating. Speaking of the Reagan Revolution, I mean, I, I've heard this over and over and over again. How many people are opposed to Donald Trump? And that's going to be problematic in 
in November. It may be. I, mean, it, it may, I don't know. I mean, it may be. But I went back and looked in the 1980 Republican primary between Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush, just for my satisfaction, Reagan had a little over 7 million votes cast. By the time the primary was were over, uh, George H.W. Bush had a little better than 3 million. So you're talking about 70-30. And if you take 70-30 and apply it to the Michigan primary, why the Michigan primary? What about the New Hampshire primary? What about the Iowa primary? What about the South Carolina primary? Well, I mean, okay. But Michigan was the only primary thus far that the Democrats had something to do on the same day. So 20 turns into 40, right? I mean, in, in, in Iowa, it's 20. Democrats didn't have anything to do. In New Hampshire, it's 20. Democrats didn't have anything to do. In South Carolina, it's 20. Democrats didn't have anything to do. When we gave the Democrats something to do in Michigan, voting their own primary, it went from 20 to 40. That's 70-30. That's about where Reagan and George H.W. Bush were. I don't know how it plays out. I mean, we may get the shock of our lives come Super Tuesday. Nikki Haley may, you know, up. I mean, do you believe in miracles? Yes. <laughs> I don't have any idea what her expectations are. I don't. I mean, I don't have any idea what Haley's expectations are. But, but I think it's just intellectually dishonest to say that Trump is in trouble because 30% of the Republican electorate are not voting for him. Well, in 1980, 30% of the Republican electorate didn't vote for Ronald Reagan. How'd that work out? I mean, how did that Reagan revolution reshape uh, the politics that we're stealing? Still? And when I thought about Josh, I'm going like, okay, Josh was not influenced. Because you and I argued. I didn't argue. We, 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 we debated the influence the Cold War had on us. And I think it's hard to separate the Cold War from the Reagan revolution. I mean, they're almost one of the same. Right, you're right. And I think that's why Reagan remained very popular. Because, I mean, Reagan had a boogeyman. He stood up to the evil yeah, empire. The, the Soviet Union. I mean, when you have a boogeyman, you know, you gain the support of more Americans than than normal. Even Democrats believe that, you know, the Soviet Union is a legitimate threat and Ronald Reagan must be supported. So even Democrats, and maybe it's a kinder, gentler nation 40-some-odd years ago. I don't know. I don't have any idea. I mean, I didn't pay any attention to politics in 1980. I was 17 years old. Give me car keys you know, 20 bucks and a tank of gas, and I'm in la-la land. I mean, who cares what the Soviet Union is doing <laughs> if I got 20 bucks, car keys, and um, and a way to get to Florence? I mean, that was kind of the, the passion of my life at that time. I just don't think it's intellectually honest to say we're, we've never been here before with a, uh, you know, a front runner in a Republican primary not having the support. Now, now how many George H.W. Bush voters were so butthurt that they wouldn't go back and vote for Ronald Reagan. I don't know. We didn't have Twitter. We didn't have Facebook. We didn't have social media. We didn't have 24-7 news. I mean, I got to believe in that hot and contested campaign, some of the Bush crowd stayed home, didn't go back to vote for Reagan because Reagan and Bush, well, I mean, Reagan did pick Bush as his VP. Maybe that was the floor decision at the convention. Uh, Thigpen was there. I mean, Thigpen has told me some of what happened on the floor at the convention with the Bush folks and the uh, and the Reagan folks, uh, I just don't think Trump picks Haley, and I don't know that the Bush, I don't know that the Bush voter. Here's a good question, Rev. We have no idea 
if the Bush voter was an anti-Reagan voter. Now, Reagan was a little older. He was a little more bombastic. I mean, he was a little politically incorrect for that time. I paid for this microphone. Bush would have been country club Republican, old money, you know, kind of aristocratic in in a weird sort of way. I got to believe some of the Bush crowd that perceived them to be, uh, perceived Reagan to be not quite country club enough, not quite blue blood enough, not quite um, insider enough. I got to believe some of those were not going to go back and vote for Reagan. And then Reagan makes Bush's vice president pick, and maybe that healed uh, some of the wounds or not. But we, this is not unprecedented. I mean, you know, primaries are, I mean, they're, they're combative. More than one person wants the prize. And when more than one person wants the prize, there's a fight. And the fight gets nasty at times. And the fight gets testy at times. And some candidates are able to put it in the rear view and some aren't. Some voting bases are able to put it in the rear view and some aren't. Um, I still believe that the number of never-Trumpers that will not under any circumstance vote for Donald Trump could be less than 10%. I mean, they're loud. I mean, that, you know, it's, it's a little bit like the vegan. Remember, I had told you I had a text yesterday. Somebody said, um, the never-Trumper is like the vegan. I mean, how many of you walk up to people, hey, are you vegetarian or not? But they tell you, you know, I'm a, I'm a vegetarian. It's a little bit like the, this, the Mitt Romney complex is what I call it. People really care, or you think people really care about everything you say and do. <laughs> I saw your sarcastic tweet uh, responding I mean, to Mitt Ra- Romney's post yesterday. Rom- Romney photo shoots <laughs> a letter he wrote to Mitch McConnell, and he puts it on his uh, Twitter account. He signs it very Signs it. Big. I mean, Mitt Romney, like John yeah. Hancock. Right, you know, exactly. I mean, That's and, what and, I and, thought. And he, and he basically... <laughs> Um, he says how great a job Mitch McConnell did, and I've served with him, and I was honored to serve with him. He's been a, a conservative icon, and thank God for Mitch McConnell. And he photo shoots it, and he puts it on his ex account. And I'm like, my man took a picture of a letter he wrote and put it on his Twitter account. I mean, how arrogant, <laughs> whether you know your arrogance or not, how arrogant does a human being have to be to believe you have an interest and what a letter he wrote to Mitch McConnell that I would have assumed is in confidence. But I guess he thought so highly of the letter he wrote and the fact that he signed it. Mitt Romney. Wow. He takes a picture of it, puts it on his Twitter account. But I mean, when you really break it down, how arrogant do you have to be to believe that there are people who care to see a picture of a letter you wrote to someone that most of them don't like? I mean, he's one of the most unpopular Republicans in American history. Um, the minority leader, one of the most prominent Republicans on this planet, had the support of 17% of his constituents. And when you accept the role of majority leader or minority leader, in a weird way, you become a national figure. I mean, you do. You broker some of the deals. Um, I, I read an article in The Federalist late yesterday afternoon about McConnell's faux pas, some of the mistakes and missteps he made over the years. I'll tell you one thing he didn't do. He didn't go broke being in the Senate. I mean, he got elected in 1980. They, they, they rarely do. Yeah, I mean, he what, 40, I think, 1984? 40, yeah, 40 years he'd been in um, in the Senate. Now, before then, he was some sort of um, uh, appointed official in the state of Kentucky. I mean, he's a law graduate. Uh, I think he's a public defender or something in the state of Kentucky. Uh, he gets elected in 1984, talking about the Reagan Revolution. He's been a senator for 40 years living in D.C., I would imagine. 
or having a residence in D.C. and a residence in Kentucky. That's what most of those guys do. Those that have been there long enough to afford it, you know, the, the cost of living in D.C., a little bit different than it is in the hollows of Kentucky, I would imagine. But McConnell and his wife, um, Elaine Chow, they figured out a way to amass a fortune in excess of $35 million on, a, on the pay of a public servant. I mean, that's just bizarre to me. I, I, one thing, I think the legacy of McConnell, and I want to delve into this, I think the legacy of McConnell, nearly tweeted this yesterday, corporate America meet government. Government meet corporate America. Josh Hawley kind of explained that. I love to find that. Hawley basically said that McConnell's legacy will forever be just the, the, the absolute inundation of campaign contributions from corporate America into the coffers of politicians who have a lot to do with the success or failure of their business. That if you really look back on the 40 years of McConnell's existence in the U.S. Senate uh, since 2000, I think he's been since 07 as minority and majority leader, longest-serving minority-slash-majority leader the Senate has ever had. Um, and then Hawley really went into some specificity about how he's changed the game from the coziness I mean, it's, it's not even unspoken any longer. I mean, it's, hey, McConnell, can you get the Exxon lobbyist in here? I mean, we're about to do some energy legislation, and I want to make sure the Exxon lobbyist and the BP lobbyist and the Shell lobbyist are okay with it. I mean, he said before it was kind of like, hey, run this out in the back room and let uh, let Jim that works for Exxon look at it and come back and tell me kind of <laughs> what he thinks for it. said Exxon, I mean, I said McConnell kind of like, hey, is, are those Exxon lobbyists still here? <laughs> Yeah, grab two or three of them and tell them to come in here. We're working on some legislation that may monitor some of the energy production that may have an impact or effect on what they do. Make sure they're okay with it because they're having a fundraiser for me next month and they're having a fundraiser for the Senate, the senatorial you know, committee the week after that. Um, Holly may be right. Corporate America meet government. Government meet corporate America. Thank you, Mitch McConnell. 843 <laughs> 0937 back in a few. 843 661 0937. I wanted a cheeseburger last night, so I waited till about 10 o'clock. Only cost me 75 cents. <laughs> I hear if you go get that same cheeseburger today at noon, it costs you $107. <laughs> I don't know. The only experience I've ever had with dynamic pricing was Springsteen in Madison Square Garden, and I didn't yike it. You see how that worked so out. So I'm concerned about what Wendy's is doing, but Wendy's is a reputable fast food chain. Um, and they're kind of stepping out in this surge dynamic pricing model. Fox News Radio's Tanya J. Powers is in New York. Tanya, as far as I'm concerned, everything's more expensive in New York, but now a hamburger in rush hour could be even more expensive. What do we make of this? Yeah, everything is more expensive in New York, by the way. If you've ever planned a trip here, you know that whatever your budget was, it should have been about twice that. Hmm. <laughs> um, but by the way, you, you actually have been dealing with dynamic pricing for a long time and didn't realize it. I'll give you an example in just a second. Uh, you're talking about the Wendy story where uh, it kind of uh, – they, they said they were going to do dynamic pricing. And for a lot of people, that was a new term. Most of us did not – I mean, we don't – most of us are not economists, and we don't live in the world of, you know, different – terms like that so when it it kind of came out uh on this on this uh you know i guess it was an earnings call earlier in the month where they said they were going to roll this out and put in you know new uh, menu boards where the prices could change 
that kind of got translated into they're going to do surge pricing. Anybody who's ever taken an Uber in the rain knows what surge pricing is. Um, if you haven't, it just means they're going to make you pay a lot more for the privilege of riding in a car in, you know, heavy traffic or bad weather or whatever, and they can do this anytime they want to. Um, Wendy's has now <laughs> come back out uh, because everybody lost their minds about this because the, the whole idea was, you know, that was getting, as they say, misconstrued was that, you know, they were going to charge more for, you know, peak times and less at other times. And that was very upsetting to a lot of people who, you know, it's Wendy's. You don't think, hey, I'm going to have to pay more for my Baconator at noon, as you said, than I am at some other time when it's, the demand is not as heavy. Um, so they are testing these new menus, and what they said was that it was misconstrued in some media reports that they were going to raise their prices when the demand was highest at their restaurants um, because of these digital media board uh, menu boards that they could that they're putting in. That's kind of what started all this. And they said that no, what this is going to do is allow them to offer discounts at you know different times of the day. Think I think happy hour, right? There's you know restaurants do happy hours. You know, in the afternoons, they may do two-for-one appetizers or drinks or whatever. That's a dynamic pricing example. Um, another dynamic pricing example uh, related to, I guess, you know, the ability to change your <laughs> prices whenever you want to, airline tickets. Um, that's, what I, that's what I meant when I said you, we've been dealing with this for a long time and didn't even realize it. Um, so what, they, what they're saying is they will – Unequivocally, unequivocally said in their statement, we will not implement surge pricing, which is the practice of raising prices when demand is highest. Uh, they said this was not a plan to change, you know, to raise their prices when customers are visiting them the most. Now, other <laughs> other restaurants like their their rival Burger King have taken advantage of this. Uh, Burger King, actually, if you're a, if you're a Burger King fan. They have, in a news release Wednesday, said that they're offering customers a free Whopper or Impossible Whopper with the purchase of $3 or more uh, now through tomorrow uh, when somebody orders through the BK app. (laughs) (laughs) Their competitors are taking advantage of this little little dust-up where people have gotten real upset about the surge pricing idea, which is, like I said, not what they said they're doing. And, And, Tanya, I'll give an example. I am not highly educated. I don't belong in a boardroom. But if I were in the boardroom and someone was, was someone was making this pitch to members of the Wendy's board, I would basically say, let's not monkey around with pricing uh, until people are comfortable with inflation. I, I don't know. I just think any time you begin discussing pricing, the, the, the consumer's real sensitive right now about they believe they're being taken advantage of. Whether they are or not, they, yeah. there's a, there's a oh, perception yeah. they are. And I just got to believe that, I mean, I'd put shoes on to go there, but I'd, I'd have a pair of shoes on and I'd sit in that boardroom and I'd say in my very Southern way, let's not discuss pricing until we believe we properly address, address inflation, but smart people run big companies and sometimes they make decisions and don't explain themselves so well. This may be one of those moments. I think and this is one of those moments. I think they're, they're expecting people to understand what dynamic pricing is. And right now, like you said, the mood in the country is I'm already paying too much for everything as it is. What are you trying to do with, you know, with my with my food? You know, this is this is a place that has built their reputation on, you know, hey, we have a value menu and we're you know trying to give you more for your money. And 
you know, this is this is kind of a long standing thing that they have done. And then to roll out menu boards where they can change the pricing at a moment's notice and then call it something we're not familiar with, that's not gonna make people that's not gonna make people <laughs> feel great about the fact that they're gonna be able to like afford to feed their family at Wendy's, you know, if for like if you want to take everybody out after the game for a treat. Hey, we're all going to Wendy's. That may not be the first thing you think of now, especially if you've got it in your mind. I don't know. What are they charging today? Correct. And what time of the day? Thank you. Um, right. Thank you, Tanya. Appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Sure. That's just kind of an interesting, I mean, you know, in the weird, and I'm thinking about some people out there who re- really immerse themselves in these sorts of, of subjects. I mean, it's the economy, it's capitalism, it's the free market. Um, is dynamic pricing one of the most capitalist things in the world today? I mean, when you really think about it, I mean, if, if kind you of supply and demand, I mean, it, right? bingo, I mean, if you go back to supply and demand and you believe that that is the fundamental principle in a free market, I mean, it's not the only principle, but it's elemental. I mean, it, it is it. I mean, it is supply and demand will never, ever not be a part of the equation. Is surge pricing or dynamic pricing the most capitalist way to price things in a free market? The, the problem is, or no, let me back up. My situation is I get it with a service. Uber would be a service. I understand yeah. that when 80,000 people are trying to leave a football game, there's going to be a surge of demand. I understand that. I mean, there are a lot of people trying to get somewhere. They didn't drive their car. They've been drinking, tailgating, whatever it is. I mean, I expect my daughter complains to me profusely about Uber. I mean, she, I think, is beginning to get it. She's a junior now. In business, and and I've tried to explain that. I so I say, okay, take some of those finance classes you've understood or you've learned, and and go back to supply and demand. I mean, there's a tremendous demand for Uber at the end of a Gamecock football game. There can't be but so much supply. More customers I mean, you know, than there are cars. Bingo. I mean, it, it is it is the point. fundamental principle of the free market. So I mean, I, but but I think what we're having trouble with, or what if I were on the Wendy's board, I'm not. But if I were. And there's a lot of smart, highly educated, successful business people in that room. But if I were on the Wendy's board, I would go back to the Billy Ray Valentine G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip. I, I would advise some of these highly educated entrepreneurs to not monkey around with pricing until people are comfortable that inflation has subsided. When, when we give examples of inflation, we normally give an example first of fast food prices. I mean, because that's kind of where... The rubber meets the road, and you notice it because you're, you know, go in to get a, a quick drive through, and you're like, it cost what? So why in the ad campaign, hey, due to out-of-control inflation, we at Wendy's are going to charge you less at 3 o'clock in the afternoon for your Baconator? See, I mean, we've we got a cost of goods. I mean, you know, we got input and output. We got in. I mean, all in it, how you present it. Yeah, in that but, case. but that's, and that's what I'm saying. I'd say, yeah. if I were on the Wendy's board— <laughs> I would have said, who who's in charge of this program? Can they come in and explain what the pitch is? Because if the pitch is not, hey, due to rampant inflation, out of control inflation, we're going to cut you a deal on your Baconator if you buy it between 2 and 4 in the afternoon. I mean, if it's not that, I'm out. <laughs> right. I mean, if it's not that, I don't think we should do it because people are so price conscious and they believe they're getting screwed, whether they are or not. And, and to some degree, I don't have any idea about fast food. I mean, you, I, I'm a passive partner in a restaurant. Rev knows this, and and I'll tell him at times, man, I'm ashamed of what we're having to pay now or what we're having to charge now, but I can show you some invoices. I mean, it's crazy. And all of a sudden, 
the government competes with your workforce and you had a salary set for a dishwasher and all of a sudden you're paying the dishwasher twice as much as, as you should have. I don't know what a dishwasher's worth. I mean, a restaurant has to have clean dishes. Somebody's got to do it. But but what can the market stand there? Well, all of a sudden the government competes with your dishwasher and you got to raise the pay of the dishwasher. Well, I mean, that's the cost of doing business. You've got to pass that expense along to uh, Rev when he walks in and, and says, I want a steak and a baked potato. I mean, I can't eat that. I mean, I got margins. I got rent. I got debt. I got all these expenses that go along. And I'm not accusing anybody of taking advantage. I think the problem probably goes back when you talk fast food and food in general. And it really goes back to a conversation we had early this week about consolidation and how many of these food companies and, and providers have been bought up by two or three, you know, behemoths in the food industry. Um, see, I'm, I'm one of these conservatives that now believe to take more seriously some of the antitrust, some of the breaking up monopolies. I mean, in my earlier life, I would have said, no, the government hadn't been doing that. I mean, if Amazon's that good at it, then Amazon gets 100% of the market, tough stuff on everybody else. I mean, if Amazon runs everybody out of business and it's only Amazon and Walmart standing and they go at it and one beats the other and all of a sudden one retailer has 100% of the market share, that's the free market. That's the way things are intended to work. As I've accepted crony capitalism has replaced capitalism, I'm far more inclined to side with some government intervention. You know, government can't let this business control but so much of the market share because they become so dominant in that sector of the economy that we only have one choice. And when you only have one choice, what happens to price? I mean, that's kind of happened to the airlines. Tanya was talking about airlines. I mean, if Josh wants to fly to the Bahamas tomorrow, I mean, he's not going to have a lot of choices. And that's because, you know, consolidation. One airline buys up another airline, buys up another airline, so that would be one of the free market principles that I am a bit squishy on. And I understand that. I mean, it's not conservative to say the government should stop a private sector business from having so much of the market share. But I think the government, ah, America first, let me say that. I think America first has an obligation to protect the consumer. That's probably a better way to say it. What is government doing to protect the consumer? The rank and file, you know, buyer of whatever at Wendy's, Baconators or you know, um, bottled water on Amazon. I don't know whatever you purchase out there, but I do believe that surge pricing or dynamic pricing is probably the most classic reflection of a free market that there is. Now, now Rev, to Tanya's point, what changes about the supply and demand of a hamburger? I mean, I understand it, you're busier at one time yeah. than you are another time, right. but what changes about the the price of that burger? Yeah, other other than support staff, well, I, mean, I guess. you got to have more employees Labor. there yeah. during the, the lunch hour. That's where we're having a hard time getting our head around. Yeah. I think you and I understand why Uber has surged pricing. I think we understand why airlines charge more the Friday before or the Friday, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving or the Friday after. I think we all understand, okay, I, I don't like it, but I understand it. But a hamburger, a hamburger, a hamburger, costs less at three <laughs> than it does at noon at Wendy's. If I'm in the boardroom, hey, let's pump the brakes on that until people aren't as concerned about inflation as they are today. Take a break. Back in a few.
843-661-0937 is our number one shift gears. Can't talk hamburger, but so long. Got to go on to, to politics. I went the down. The Baconator is just fun to say. Well, I mean, the Baconator is probably, yeah. I mean, what is that their kind of, um, is that their trademark burger? Yes, that's one of them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't eat fat. Well, I, I sound insulting. I just don't. Fast food makes me feel bad. I mean, it just, it makes me feel, ah. I mean, it, it tastes good. You know what I mean? It's got all this high fructose corn syrup and food glue. And I guess they, <laughs> I want to say they, they don't season the food glue. They flavor the food glue. And the flavor of the food glue is intoxicating. And, I mean, it, it can really, you can lose your mind uh, for half second. But I just, I feel bad when I eat it and I try not to. Um, I mean, I was 10 years of my life, every meal I ate almost was a, uh, a fast food meal. Um, not the case any longer. And I love the, I don't love the stories, but it's kind of interesting to hear people in every walk of life talk about how much food costs now. I mean, if you sit down and have a conversation about anything and start talking about food, somebody has a story. I mean, everybody, Hey, let me tell you what happened to me. I mean, me and my wife and kid went to such and such. And I remember six or seven years ago, it cost, you know, 30 bucks. And now it's $53 or it's 54. Rev tells me stories about carrying food home. He said, man, you're not going to believe this. I said, what do you mean I'm not going to? What happened? I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, he robbed a bank. I mean, the way, you're not going to believe this. I mean, you don't rob a bank, man. He's like, no, I went and got food. <laughs> I like, got robbed. Okay, here we go again. And I'm going to call names, but it's like this restaurant. And I like their food, but good Lord. I mean, it's, you know, what used to be 30 bucks is $55 now. Um, I think of the podcast we did with my buddy Dale Barr. And, and he runs a restaurant. <laughs> Has spent his entire life that in that business. Funny. And he said, and I quote, costs too damn much to eat out now. <laughs> and I run a restaurant. <laughs> I run restaurants for a living. <laughs> it costs too much to eat out now. Uh, it costs a lot of money. But um, but if I'm on the Wendy's board, I mean, there, there's a reason I'm not. I'm not qualified to be on the board. But if I'm on the Wendy's board and they introduce what they're about to do, you know, on behalf of the shareholder, because it's a publicly traded company, and the board members have a fiduciary responsibility to make sure the company's doing a job in the best interest of the brand. So somebody walks in, and I would imagine the CEO gives the board report, or the, the, the CEO gives the CEO report that the board receives, and then they make motions and they, you know, take advice. And I would imagine they're always dealing with litigation. There's a lawyer in there from Wendy's representing their interests in some of these litigations that they're having all over the country. Um, somebody comes in and says, oh, yeah, before the board adjourns, I want to tell you about this surge dynamic pricing. Uh, situation that we're going to introduce next week to our consumers. And I would kind of sit up like, whoa, kind of interesting here. I'm thinking Springsteen and Madison Square Garden, and I'm kind of curious about this. So um, what? What? can you explain that a little better? Um, what do you mean, Mr. Art? Can, can you explain that a little better? I, I don't know what you mean. I mean, we're going to start charging different prices at different times of the day. Who's in charge of that? Are you in charge of that? No. Um, Sandra. In marketing is in charge of that. I mean, she's put a lot of effort into this. I mean, she's done a lot of research. Got to, can we get her in here? I mean, can we get her in here? Because I want to know what we're telling our consumers. What do you mean, what are we telling our – what is the pitch? I mean, what is the pitch to the people eating the Baconators? And we want them to keep eat, eating Baconators and maybe a Frosty on the on the backside of that. What What is the pitch? So the lady comes in and probably gives a complicated dissertation because she wants to appear to be bright and smart and well-educated and prepared in front of the board. I mean, she don't want to be a, an embarrassment in front of the board. 
I mean, you can't have any G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip conversations in the boardroom at Wendy's. And I would probably say something like, let's just make sure that consumers know, that our customers know, that the Baconator at noon is never going to be more expensive than it is today. And the Frosty at noon is never going to be more expensive than it is today. They're going to get a price break. They're going to get it cheaper. Let's use that simple word. There's a cheaper price for the Baconator and a cheaper price for the Frosty if you eat it after 2 o'clock in the afternoon and before 4. Well, I mean, we didn't plan on Well, I mean, as a board member (laughs) with the judiciary responsibility, I think that's the best way to do it. But I didn't spend all the time and effort you have in making sure you've impressed your superiors in, um, in this new surge pricing model that we're introducing that consumers know absolutely nothing about. That would just be the spin, but that would be the right spin. I mean, really smart people at times do dumb things. I mean, really bright people at times do really dumb things. Take a break. Back in a few moments. 843-661-0937. Our number, someone's on the phone. Let's go there. DW in Florence. Good morning. Hey, guys. What's going on? Hey, hey. How are you? Hey, hey, good man, good man. Go Tigers for this weekend. Hope you guys uh, lose all three games. Sorry. I think it's a lot of fun for us to play baseball against one another. I mean, it is. It's a lot because because you played a lot of ball and I have done baseball. This three game series. I mean, it means everything this weekend. But over the whole of the season, it doesn't really mean that much. That's right. But just for us to play each other is big time, and we always enjoy playing it. You know, whoever wins can brag the rest of the year about who beat who in baseball. Right. That's right. So, question for you. You know, I've been doing this retail thing for about 50 years. And uh, it's always something real simple to me. was taught me a long time ago when I was doing retail is you keep things simple. You don't try to muddy the water and try to confuse the customer. And you know, I've been listening to you talk about this for a couple of days. And I'm thinking, you know, I don't know what they got on their mind, but, okay, I got to come this time, get this price. I come this time, I get this price. And I'll save, you'll save some money if you come here. And I'm looking at, back in my mind going, do you really think people are going to spend time every day driving up and going, well, it's only one thirty now. I'm going to come back and save me two bucks to uh, get my, my drink or my hamburger or whatever else. Uh, I don't know what Wendy's got in mind. I don't know if they've got some highfalutin, bright young boy out of Harvard or wherever for or young lady from Harvard. But uh, keep it simple, stupid. Uh, you know, you don't need to confuse people by trying to give all these different times and places and Everybody knows food's expensive, you know, but uh, so is time. So it just kind of makes me think, what in the world are they thinking? Thinking that they're gonna people gonna fall for all this? They may. Who, who knows? In today's world, who knows? But uh, <laughs> then again, go Tigers! You guys have a good weekend. Uh, keep doing what you're doing, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, DW. Appreciate it, man. Thanks, Eight sir. four three. Yeah, go Gamecocks! But it's yeah. a lot of fun to play that three game series oh, yeah. in baseball. Um, I mean. I, I don't know that some of these big businesses don't try to outthink themselves. I mean, I don't have any idea. Um, I, I mean, I think DW is on to something. I mean, in my business life, the mistakes I made, and I've made a lot, were when I didn't see the forest for the trees. I mean, I tried to, I mean, it's almost like borrowing. I mean, there are some complicated matters in business that require a lot of complication. I mean, there just are. But there are some things we complicate ourselves. And if I were in business today, Knowing how concerned consumers were about inflation, I would not talk price. 
I mean, I would just make it the last thing on the list. We're going to talk about service and quality, and we're doing the best we can to care for our customers. But, but I think when you say the word price, our rabbit ears go up. Okay, they're going up again. And all of a sudden, surge pricing. And DW said 90% of, 95% of Americans don't know what surge pricing is. And then all of a sudden, you say, okay, different prices for different times of the day. And I think consumers say, ah, it's too complicated for me. I'll go to the next hamburger joint. I mean, you know, they're not the only ones that have vanilla and, and chocolate ice cream in a cup. I mean, I, you know, I, I just, once again, I'm not on the Wendy's board. I'm, I'm not working at Wendy's. I don't know how complicated or sophisticated, but, but I'll give you the Bud Light example. The moment that I'm at Bud, I mean, if I'm on the board at Bud Light and we hire a female, with an economics degree from an Ivy League institution to be our branding and marketing director with Bud Light, with Bud Light, female economics degree from Ivy League institution. I'm going like, nah, I, I, that's that's a bad move. I mean, that that's not a smart. Let's find somebody else to be our marketing branding because she has nothing in common with our consumer. She's probably smart. She's probably capable. She's probably able. She's probably genuinely, sincerely trying to do a good job, but she's out of touch with her consumers are and probably doesn't care much for who those beer-drinking good old boys (laughs) are. Take a break. Back in just a few. It is Thursday morning at 7.06 or 7. One thing we can always count on, not always, but almost always, is Reggie Armstrong joining us to kind of give an update, an accounting of where we are in the um, in the political slash economic situation we find ourselves in, Reggie, you and I were talking during the break, and, and I, I'll readily admit that very often my economic projections or opinions are more heavily influenced by the negativity in politics <laughs> than they probably should be. I mean, if you talk to me for twenty minutes, you'll jump off a cliff. I'm convinced <laughs> of that because you don't think you got any choice. I mean, the abyss lies ahead. But but in reality, I mean, it's kind of my world. And, and I sure. get immersed in my world, and there's nothing I see optimistic about the body politic addressing some of the genuine big concerns. But the world turns, and we've still got to – we can't get frozen. We can't get right. paralyzed. We've got to make some of these decisions. A decision that you try to make every day for your clients is when or when not to buy stock. Right. And there are all sorts of ways to value what it's mm-hmm. worth. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, what Reggie will pay mm-hmm. and what I'll – you know what I mean? Well, yeah. I'll accept – I mean, that's the – the negotiation, but is there a is, is there a way that you trust more than others mm-hmm. in what a stock is genuinely worth in real time? Sure, and and there's there's lots of ways. Uh, most investors who enjoy can uh, buying individual stocks either on their own or through an advisor. But as as their advisor themselves or both are evaluating, you know the typical one that most people look at is price to earnings. It used to be that. A price to earnings ratio of 15, again, that's the price of the stock divided by its earnings per share. Okay. And so 15 is was considered fair value. Most people believe because of modern technology and ease of transactions and lower tax rates compared to 50 years ago, that maybe 18 to 20 is fair value. Most people would agree that a stock trading at a 10 PE is pretty cheap and one trading at 50 is kind of way out there. Um but there are other metrics that are as or perhaps even better at forecasting, uh, you know, are you buying a good stock, I mean, at a good price or a good stock at a too expensive of a price? And one is called the price to sales ratio. It was, uh, I don't know if invented is the right word, but it was sort of de- 
founded back in the seven, late 70s, and it's turned out to be a fairly accurate prognosticator as to, hey, did I, did I overpay for this or not? And so, again, it's the price of the stock, but it's divided by the sales of the company. And so there's a, you know, a relationship to the sales. And I'll give you a quote, and then I'll give you some popular stocks today, what their price-to-sales ratio is. So what is a fair value price-to-sales ratio? Probably about one. You know, one to two would be fair. Anything less than one is kind of pretty cheap. What that means is you get a payback in dividends in about a year. In other words, in other words it doesn't take you that long to get your money back. You're, you're not overpaying. Now, back in 1999... Sun Microsystems, again, for any stock I mentioned, folks, I'm not recommending for or against them. I'm just stating facts, okay? So Sun Microsystems, that's my cover my rear end statement there again. I got you. <laughs> <laughs> got to satisfy the regulators, right? Mm. Uh, so um, Sun, CEO of Sun Microsystems, um, you know, that, that stock was trading around 10 PE, uh, price to sales ratio, excuse me. And here's what the CEO said publicly. Okay, and because the stock was trading around sixty-four dollars a share, and he goes at ten times revenues, which is what price. He goes to give you a ten-year payback. I have to pay you one hundred percent of revenues for ten straight years in dividends. Mm. That assumes I can get that by my shareholders. It assumes I have zero cost of goods sold, which is very hard for a computer company. Assumes zero expenses, which is really hard with thirty-nine thousand employees. It assumes I pay no taxes, which is very hard. It assumes that you pay no taxes on your dividends, which is kind of illegal. At that. And that assumes with zero research and development for the next 10 years, I can maintain the current revenue run, run rate. Now, having done that, would any of you like to buy my stock at 64? Do you realize how ridiculous those basic assumptions are? This is the CEO back in 9 and saying, you shouldn't be buying my stock. I'm, it's too expensive. And it, it crashed. It, it was hard. Okay, I mean, it was hard. Um, it, it, you know, the, the, the tech companies, some went out of business, but we have to remember as great as the NASDAQ did in 1999, up 86% that year, as everybody was chasing those stocks, you know, the NASDAQ fell approximately 78% from peak in 2000 to the bottom in, in, in 02. And that's a real painful ride. So let's take a look at some of the current stocks, if that's okay, in my Please. remaining yeah. couple that's of minutes. So again, keeping in mind that one to two would probably be a reasonable place and something less than that pretty cheap. Here's where some of the high flyers are today. So Advanced Micro Devices has done a pretty good job of, you know, taking market share from Intel. It's at 12.45. That's kind of expensive. Microsoft, 13.4. Means they got to pay you everything they they were earning for 13 years for you to get, you know, if we, you know again, but, but right now, that's what, what people want, right? Uh, let's take a look at uh, MasterCard. It's at 17. Even... It's not all tech companies. Eli Lilly's sitting at 21.43. And then today's current darling, NVIDIA, 32.34. So NVIDIA is the sexy AI name right now, but buyer beware. You are, you, you know, unless they grow their revenues out the wazoo for, you know, for 32 years, um, you've got to be a little careful here. Now, let's give some companies that aren't considered as sexy and in, you know, that's, you know, they're not the in stocks. Just a couple of them and a couple of them that are local. Exxon, price to sales ratio, 1.26. You know, Nucor, local company, 1.38. Sunoco, 0.83, under one. Now, that doesn't mean just with that piece of data, you run out and you buy one of those stocks or you sell the other ones. 
It's just someone who does their own stock picking or does it in conjunction with a financial professional needs to take that into consideration. Does that make sense? You know, and, and that doesn't mean you don't buy an expensive stock, but you may want to have what's called a stop loss on there. You may want to say, hey, if it drops 10% from where I buy it, I'm out. You know, again, don't want to give anybody individual advice over the radio, can't, but you you certainly want to take um, buying those kind of expensive stocks with, a, you know, with, with just be cautious. And in the, the cheaper ones, just make sure you know the whole picture. There may be a reason they have a low price to sales ratio, you know, Maybe their their sales are going down the tubes, and and so is the stock price, and that may not be a good stock to buy. Well, let me ask you a question. I mean, sure. I know you can't give direct advice on whether to buy stock A or stock B. Mm-hmm. If something has mm-hmm. a a price to sales number so out of kilter yep. as Sun Microsystems, mm-hmm. is that off the list for Reggie Armstrong? I mean, uh, in, in other words, how do you evaluate? It, it looks to me like let's buy all the Sunoco we can, right, right. but never ever buy Sun right. Microsystems. Right. Kind of, I mean, but but that's not the case. Right. It's more complicated than that. It is. It's more complicated than that because they, again, you've got to you've got to dig into the financial sheet a little bit more because again, there could be good reasons why uh, one company is cheaper. Like even on a PE ratio, there might be a really good reason that it's where the price is because the earnings aren't they aren't growing and so it's being priced appropriately. And and same thing, so, you know, expensive stocks can continue to get real expensive until something bad happens. And so you can buy a stock that's kind of out there. And normally I would say, hey, I'm not sure I want to buy X, Y, Z. But when you realize, at least right now, it's all clear on the sailing, it may still be smart to own it. But again, you, you have to pair that with a strategy of some sort to, in my opinion, of how you're going to handle that if the market starts to move against you, because if something is way overpriced, it's going to crash much harder. You know, 2000, the S&P fell just about 50%, 48. So that takes 100% return to break even. Something falls, let's say, 80% because you paid way too much, and many stocks did. That's a 400% return you got to get now to break even if the company survives it. So just have to be careful, do it diligently, get it, you know, get someone to give you a good second opinion on it. Yeah, if you want to buy Baconator and Frosty without advice, go ahead. I mean, you know, <laughs> whether you want to buy it at noon or two in the afternoon, Man, if you want to do I figured this, you didn't want to talk about hamburgers I mean, anymore. They're, not, they're, they're too expensive. They're too expensive, Reggie. But, but no, I mean, what I'm saying is, well, I mean, they're they're making that a complicated decision. Oh, yeah. I want to buy my Baconator right. and Froster, Frosty. But I mean, you're talking about the money that people need to live the rest right. of their existence. That's an important decision that people have to make. You want to be their trusted advisor, trusted partner. How can someone start that partnership? Sure. Give us a call, 843-292-9997, or check us out on, on the web at armstrongwealth.com. Thank you. Appreciate it, Ken. This Thursday's edition of the Armstrong Minute is brought to you by the Armstrong Wealth Management Group at 1807 West Evan Street in Florence. Opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. Securities are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. It may come to a point we need an advisor to buy our Baconator and, <laughs> That's what I was and Frosty. What time of the day do I need to buy it, Reg? How <laughs> much do I have enough money to buy it at noon? I'm hungry. But I can save $2 uh, if I wait until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Let's go to the phone. Carlos in Pamplico. Good morning. You are on the air. All right. Good morning, Ken. Good morning. Good morning. All right. Sitting back enjoying this cool Carolina weather right here. <laughs> it's nice outside today. Yeah. It sure is. Um, 
my opinion about um I think you said Wendy's. Uh, my opinion about the um when they're trying to change the prices during the day, maybe because sometimes during the day if you look at some of these restaurants, they're not very full, you know, not too many people there. Maybe that's a way of trying to attract some of the business in at that certain time of day. Like three o'clock, you don't see that many people, you know, there at two o'clock, three o'clock, but twelve o'clock, you know, the the parking lot is full. So maybe that's a good no business decision right there, and um, and also I think um, if you don't mind, also I think for the prices of things now, I think when they started going up on people pay, that's when the the food started rising a little bit, and maybe that's you know it's just my opinion. Yeah, I could be wrong. I'll see what your opinion on that. Thank you, Carlos. Appreciate it. You know I don't have any doubt that companies knew that consumers had more money and they had more ability to get whatever they could get for chicken strips or a hamburger or a Frosty and Wendy's case. Um, at what point is it gouging? I, I don't know. I mean, at what point does a company have an obligation to consider the common good? I don't know. Um, I mean, consumers, I mean, Reggie and I were talking during the break before we went on the air live. Um, I mean, I think we're in phase two of the economic uh, conundrum uh, to come. <laughs> And you know, I mean, I, I'm not an economist by any stretch, but I've been in business my entire life. I feel like I have a pretty good understanding of what makes it work and what we have to be careful about. I'm not, once again, an educated or scholarly economist, but but I believe that when the government stimulated the economy by injecting what seven trillion dollars in liquidity that didn't exist prior to COVID, I mean, the M2 money supply went from 15 trillion to 22 trillion dollars. I mean, that, that, that generates inflation. I mean, it's just going to generate inflation. How much of it is a natural result of increasing liquidity in the economy by the Fed? How much it is um, corporations trying to squeeze as much profit out of this situation as they can? That, that's a complicated argument. Do I believe that some companies decided to gouge? Yes, absolutely I do. Um, I mean, if the consumer's value in the marketplace is X, and it increases by 30% and you're a business, you got to be aware that there's 30% more liquidity floating around out there in Josh, Dave, and Ken's bank account. I mean, that, you know, they, they, they like to eat hamburgers. They like to eat Frosties. What does the price of a, I mean, is it organic? Is it, is it corporate driven? I, you know, th- there's a fair debate to be had about that. Um, I think we've got to understand, and this is philosophical, I think people like me, because I would consider myself to be about as capitalist as they come, I think people like me need to understand that capitalism is not a, a god to worship at the altar of. It's an economic theory, and it allows for greed. It allows for corruption. It allows for a lot of things that aren't good for the system that we live in. And I think most of my life, because I was a free market libertarian and I didn't like government and I didn't want government doing anything to kind of create ah, unfairness in a capitalist economy. And I, I don't think, I think that's wrongheaded. I mean, I think you've got to agree in some way, shape or form that guardrails are essential. Guardrails are necessary. Now that's where the debate starts. I mean, where do we put the guardrails? Who's in charge of the guardrails? Um, what happens when someone breaks through one of those guardrails? I mean, th- those are complicated matters, but I think the America First political movement 
as a part of it. I mean, I don't want to say it's essential to it, but as part of the American political movement, the America first political movement has to consumer the American worker in mind. And for the American worker to be prioritized, we've got to consider its plot in, in the free market. And, and I think historically I've looked at capitalism once again, as the greatest of all inventions in the history of mankind. I mean, it rewards, it, it penalizes in the fairest way imaginable, but we replace capitalism with crony capitalism and businesses and, and sectors of our economy bought favors from, from the government. And if somebody gets a favor from the government, Josh, somebody else has to pay for it. I mean, if somebody gets preferential treatment by the federal government, somebody's getting less than preferential treatment by, uh, it's just by necessity. I mean, that's the way it's going to always be. Uh, if we've got a dollar and Josh gets 75 cents, there's not but a quarter left over for me. So, so I think I've got to stop looking at capitalism as a kind of an altar to worship or a God to worship at the altar of, but rather an, a very imperfect political uh, economic theory managed by imperfect human beings who very often operate on fear, very often operate on greed. So, so when you interject the word fear and greed, I got you, Josh. Go ahead and play the music. I mean, you know, capitalism separate of fear and greed run by perfect Vulcans is, is good. I mean, I'm sure it's perfect. But capitalism run by human beings who react to greed and fear, I mean, it needs some sort of oversight. Take a break. Back in a few. Thursday morning, Great Television Senior National Editor, White House Correspondent John Decker joins us as he normally does. John, good morning. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great, Ken. Hope you're doing well, having a good week. Uh, hope you enjoyed your all that attention that South Carolina got this past weekend with the primary. We did. We just didn't get as many radio ads as we were hoping for. <laughs> it was not a hotly contested. I mean, anytime yeah. Trump and, and a former governor of South Carolina are in the mix, that's going to be uh, a national story. We just, um, it was different, John. Normally when they come to South Carolina, there's still four or five candidates, you know, in the exactly. mix, and they're fighting for exactly. Uh, to be one or sure. two standing. So it was a little bit different this time. John, if you'll unlock the back gate, I'll meet you at Air Force One this morning. I know that you're <laughs> flying with the president to our southern border. In fact, the president and the front runner, eventual Republican nominee, will both be at our southern border today, if I'm not mistaken. What do we make of that, you, John? You are not mistaken. They're going to be 325 miles apart from each other, however. Uh, president Biden will be in Brownsville, Texas. Uh, and President, former President Trump will be in Eagle Pass, Texas, and they'll both be talking about the issue of border security. Uh, for President Biden, uh, he'll be urging uh, Congress to pass a bipartisan border security bill uh, that provides for significant changes in U.S. immigration policy. Uh, and uh, in addition to that, he'll be meeting with Border Patrol officials and local leaders as well while he's in Brownsville, for the former president, uh, for his visit, he is going to be talking about uh, what border security was like during his four years as president and the changes that he would put in place if he's elected president once again. But, John, it's an acceptance that this is a major issue in the 2024 presidential cycle. I always imagined nothing would exceed the importance of inflation. I mean, we're talking about the, the, the cost of, of oh, going sure. out to eat, the cost of going to the grocery store. But, but I've looked at recent polls, and I'm sure you have, that the, the, the voters in America today consider immigration at least as important as inflation, and it's going to be a central issue in this campaign. 
Well, uh, it's not just you and I, Ken, that are looking at polls. It's the Biden White House. It's the president who's looking at those polls. That's the reason for the second visit to the U.S. border by President Biden since he took office the first visit to El Paso, Texas. Uh, and he recognizes this is essentially uh, his Achilles heel uh, as he campaigns for reelection, uh, recognizing that in poll after poll, national poll after national poll, the issue of border security is a top issue for a, a significant percentage of voters. John, I want to go to another subject. You're a lawyer and you've helped us navigate some of the complexities of litigation. I admit I'm not uh, a, a legal scholar by any stretch, but I do think I understand the politics of where things are. I've got friends in my world that love Trump. I got friends in my world that don't like Trump any at all. And the yeah. initial impulsive reaction when Trump is involved, they're either trying to screw him or he's getting exactly <laughs> what he deserves. There seems to be no middle ground, no middle yeah. ground with Donald Trump. That's right. But, but in, in, and, I, and I would be an America first voter. I'm a Trump supporter, but I don't understand how you believe you're immune from anything that comes your way after you leave the White House. But that immunity case will go before the Supreme Court. What legally are we arguing about, John? Well, the idea that Donald Trump's lawyers presented uh, that a president has absolute immunity over all of his official acts while he's president of the United States. That particular issue uh, will come before the Supreme Court for oral arguments the week of April the 22nd. So a further delay in that election interference case that has been brought by the special counsel in Washington, D.C., uh, and the Supreme Court, uh, I think, took this case up because they've never had a case like this before. And they uh, want to weigh in uh, on this particular matter uh, and essentially lay the law down uh, for not only the former president, but any future president in terms of this concept of absolute immunity for alleged criminal acts that a president took while he was in office. So the court will basically decide how much immunity a former president has? I mean, is, there is no precedent in that interpretation of law now? There's no interpretation. There's no case that involves criminal matters. That's the distinction. Does it uh, involve civil matters? Absolutely. You know, that's the reason why uh, you had the former president, the, the president at the time, uh, Bill Clinton, be, uh, being able to be sued uh, for uh, civil matters. It's the reason why there was a case that came before the Supreme Court uh, again, involving civil matters involving, uh, at the time, uh, President Richard Nixon. But never has there been an instance where a president has been uh, alleged to have committed criminal crimes, uh, criminal acts. And that is what makes this case so different. That's interesting. John, thank you for your time, sir. Have safe travels, and, um, and we'll talk again next Thursday. I look forward to it. Thanks so much. Have a great day and a great week, and we'll talk next week. Bye, Thank Ken. you. Thank you. Great television senior national editor, White House correspondent John Decker, giving us an inside perspective of what's happening in our nation's capital. I read a good bit yesterday, and the more I read, the more confused I become. I mean, it, it, it's a lot of legal, I don't want to say mumbo-jumbo, but in my world, it's mumbo-jumbo. I mean, it's page after page and, in uh, you know, opinion after opinion. The best way I can explain it to the non-lawyer is they're making a determination. The court has decided, the Supreme Court has decided there's not any clarity here. Um, how much immunity a former president has. I'll give an example, and I never thought of this. Let's say that 
Chuck Schumer goes to Donald Trump with a piece of legislation that Trump says as president, I'm going to veto. And Schumer says, Donald, we know some things you've done. And if you veto this legislation, once you leave office, we're coming after you. I mean, we're coming after you with everything we've got. You better, you better not veto that bill because if you do, if you do, your first day as non-president will be your worst day as non-president because we're filing all sorts of civil judgments and uh, criminal charges. I mean, do we know something? You see where I'm headed? I mean, it, it would. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it would be a danger. I mean, I'm not saying he deserves blanket immunity. I mean, I've said nobody deserves blanket immunity. I don't care how many people voted for you or not. But I'm excited and support the Supreme Court deciding to what extent a former president has immunity relating to potential uh, criminal activity. Now, now, Trump's not committed a crime. He's been charged with a lot of crimes. He's not been convicted of anything yet. Um, and he's going to have a friendly court. I mean, you know, I'm not saying that Amy Coney Barrett owes Donald Trump a vote. I'm not saying that Kavanaugh owes Trump a vote um, or Gorsuch. Gorsuch owes Trump a vote. I'm not arguing that, but but I'm just saying it's a fairly conservative court, and we'll see what they – I think John nailed it. There has been no clarity on how much immunity a president has once he leaves office. We're going to get that. But, but Jack Smith really wanted this done before the election, and it looks to me like, because of some of the discovery and hearings, it's not going to get done before the election. Let's go to the phone. Breeze, good morning. You're on. Hey, uh, the thing is, kid, you know, uh, fair trial is jury of your peers. But, uh, you know, uh, do you I think you get a fair shake? Think... Breeze, let me ask you this. As a conservative, <laughs> do you think you get a fair shake at the Supreme Court? I mean, if, if you ha- if, if, if Breeze had to go to the Supreme Court today and be tried for X, Y, or Z, do, do you have enough confidence in the U.S. Supreme Court right now? No. No, because I believe what they are. I believe there may be a time, I think there's a time in every policeman's life, every politician's life, to where they have these ideals and they have these, this amount of character and so forth. But I think what ends up happening, they go into it, let's say I will become the governor and I'm going to make everything right. I'm going to do the good, I'm going to do good, I'm going to do good. But just like when you first went up to Columbia, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And then all of a sudden you figure out that you can't. And, uh, and, another, and so they just say, well, I'm just going to get power and money. I'm just going to go for power and money. And I think these judges, they're there for life. And I think that what happens there, I think they're human beings, and I think that their brains get screwed up. Even the ones that we think may believe the way we do, I think they get this uh, emperor complex when you're in the Supreme Court. Well, you don't know what the hell those crazy rascals are going to say. I don't think they have any more common sense than you or I do. Now, they don't, they, they don't, don't like your boy, you say, well, I'm not a legal scholar, but I tell you what, when it comes to common sense, I'm going to smoke up your cleats, which I hope you're training, by the way. I think you got more common sense than John Decker. Now, he may have a law degree, and I think I got more common sense than John Decker. But I, I don't, I, I'm at the point now. Listen, if you if you and I and our wives went downtown Charleston this weekend, and we were um, trying to, if somebody tried to attack and rob us, 
and we defended ourselves, or let's say you had your concealed weapon on you legal carry, and you literally got to the point the guys pulled a knife on you and you shot them, I figure your odds are 50-50 at best that you don't go to jail. That's in Charleston, South Carolina. So I, I don't have any faith at all at this point in my life in anything to do with the justice of talk, justice in this country. And I think, uh, and I, again, but like I, I don't think that there's many people out there that I, I wonder how many people realize we've got a broke system and how many people out there really want to fix it. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. Okay, let's ask this question, Josh. Uh, well, let's take a break. I mean, it, 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 I don't want to get too far behind here. Let's take a break, come back. Here's the question I want you to ponder. If you had some legal matter, if you found yourself in legal peril and you had a choice, the U.S. Supreme Court can hear your case or a jury of 12. Who do you put the most trust in? Where do you think you get the fairest shake? Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Larry in Florence. Good morning, Larry. You're on. Hey, good morning, everybody. You know, if the Trump legal team loses the Supreme Court argument regarding immunity, then the Biden camp might want to get a little worried because, you know, consider this potential scenario, a, a futuristic uh, Republican-dominated Congress and a Republican-dominated DOJ goes back to Trump, I mean, back to Biden after he's out of office and says, look, we're charging you for treason, specifically for allowing the Chinese balloon to fly across the entire continent, gathering sense of information, feeding it real-time back to Beijing. And, oh, by the way, you were doing that, we now know, for financial gain. Uh, so we're charging you for treason and all that comes with it. Uh, I think, as harebrained as you might think that scenario is, I think it's every bit as legitimate as suggesting that Trump's an insurrectionist. That's all I got. Thank you. That's a lot. And mm-hmm. I think, I mean, that, that's where I don't think I believe that Donald Trump has unlimited immunity. I mean, I, I don't think Trump can order the, the assassination of a political rival and not be charged with a crime. I mean, I, for the, I just can't get my head around that. I mean, once again, I'm not a legal scholar. Uh, but but that just doesn't make sense to me. I mean, Josh is nodding his head like no. I mean, uh, but 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 I think you got to be real careful in believing that politics is fair. I mean, that there's always going to be a sense of retribution. In other words, Donald Trump was like this when he was here, and he didn't play ball. So we'll teach him a lesson once he doesn't have the cover of the seal of the president any longer. I don't think that's a far fetched argument to make at all. And and I think the the reason that Trump stirs or generates so much fear is he hits back. And I think liberal America has had kind of carte blanche on going after Republicans and Republicans kind of read the constitution and said, well, I mean, it's, you know, it says this and says that. And the Democrats said, get that constitution out of here. It's time to pay back. I mean, it's time to settle the score. And I think now they look at Trump and say, Hey man, this cat doesn't take it laying down. I mean, if you come after him, he comes after you. And and I do think it's time that we have an understanding, and clarity is the word I use, on exactly what limits a president, former president has in immunity. I think it's very interesting that Jack Smith says, uh, when challenged a little bit, and I heard that last week, when Jack Smith said 
that the two situations of mishandling classified information are very unique and different. Because somebody tried to say, well, I mean, both these guys did it, and one's being charged with a crime and the other's not. And Jack Smith said, yeah, one was obstinate and, and, and abrasive and didn't want to give it back, and he obstructed justice. Fair enough. But, but the one thing Jack Smith left out, one has been president at the time. I mean, to me, that, that's the biggest question that I have. Biden had classified information as a former vice president and a former member of the Senate. I mean, there's a debate about what classified information the president can be in possession of. There is no debate about a vice president or a former member of the Senate. The answer is no. I mean, he can't have any classified information. So a former vice president possesses classified information. He gets somewhat of a break because he's feeble and old and probably can't stand trial. And now that the doctor yesterday said he's perfectly healthy, I mean, does that allow him to stand trial now? I mean, her said he's old and feeble and would be a sympathetic person in court. Therefore, we're not trying him of a crime. The White House doctor says he's perfectly uh, fit. He's ready and willing and able to do the job. So one or the other aren't telling the truth. I mean, you can't have it both ways. He can't be able to stand trial. And the White House doctor says he's perfectly healthy. But, but I go back to, to what Jack Smith said. Smith said these are uniquely different one from another because one kind of sort of wanted to get along once he was found out. The other did not at all. Okay, let, let's say that's true. Let's say Trump said, you know, you can all go to hell. I'm not giving anything back. I mean, it's mine. I'm a former president. I decide what I get, what I don't get. And I took what I think I should get. I mean, we've always heard there's a negotiation. Normally, the president takes too much. And, and some of the Department of Archives or, you know, whatever, they kind of reach back out and say, hey, man, we think you got some things you're not supposed to have. And the negotiation goes on. And, you know, Trump didn't do it that. I mean, okay, let, let's say that's fair. Let's say Donald Trump did not in good faith negotiate with the Department of Archives or whoever is entitled to say, you can keep that but not this. We know that Biden didn't have the authority to keep any of it. I mean, none of it. Because at the time, he'd never been a duly elected president. That's the most unique difference in the two right. scenarios. But the former president, who we can debate whether or not should have had this or that or the other, is charged with a crime. The former vice president, who we know has no right or authority to possess classified information, is, I mean, he's given a free pass. And we don't believe, I mean, who doesn't believe that's a double standard? That's an absolute double standard. Let's go to the phone. Jim in Florence. Good morning, Jim. Hey, good morning. Ken, legitimate question. question. When has any Republican uh, demonstrated a willingness uh, to do what the Democrats are doing by going after Donald Trump? Has there ever been an example? <sighs> it's hard for me to come up with one. I mean, it, it's real hard. Well, I mean, Newt Gingrich. Gingrich going after Clinton. But this theory that the Republicans, when they assume power, if they ever will again, are going to go after Democrats the way that Trump has because Democrats have somehow opened the door, I think is a false premise. I don't, I mean, there's certainly nothing really to show that they have a willingness to do it. I mean, just right here alone, I like Alan Wilson. I'll vote for him anytime he runs. But why is it Todd Rutherford in jail? 
we have Democrats in this own state committing crimes in front of our very eyes, and no one's doing a damn thing, Ken. So this idea that the Republican Party is going to do anything is a farce. Um, and, and presidents don't have immunity. It's just the process is different. And we can't have civilian uh, prosecutors going after presidents because then every president will be an insurrectionist when he leaves office. So, Jim, what note? Are you still there? Okay. So yeah. what do you think a reasonable determination by the Supreme Court is? I mean, uh, to, to, to what extent does a former president have immunity? Well, the, just that the process is he'd be impeached and then he'd go in front of uh, a trial in front of the Senate. I think that's the process. So you don't believe that a when a if a president, I mean that this is where we're we're I know we're not confused, but I mean this is what we're trying to address. Do you agree with me that Trump can't pull a gun out of the resolute desk, invite his political rival over, shoot and kill him? Right, because then the the House should impeach him and the Senate should try him. But you don't think law enforcement should storm the Oval Office, put him in handcuffs? Absolutely not. See, that, that's confusing to me. I mean, i, I got to admit, I mean, I, I understand the constitutional process, and I understand the art of impeachment. I, I get all that. That's the leg you're standing on. But but it, it blows my mind to believe that an American president, a civilian of the United States, I mean, I know he's got the full authority of that presidency behind him, but it's hard for me to believe that, that America would allow a president to reach in a desk drawer, pull a gun, shoot his political rival dead, and not law enforcement storm the Oval Office and put him in handcuffs. Well, I mean, how often have presidents violated the Constitution? I mean, look what Lincoln did during. Yeah, but the we're war. talking about violating the Constitution or killing another human being. Well, I mean, it was hundreds of thousands dead because of that. But, no, but you you uh, see the point I'm trying to make. I mean, you're a smart guy. I know you you know, know what illustration I, or the contrast I'm trying to draw. But we're throwing out hypotheticals that simply. I mean, what's the probability of it happening? It's zero to, I mean, it's, it's, it's negligible. It'll never happen. And if it does, we're in a sad state of affairs. And the last thing we're concerned about is law enforcement storming the White House. So, I mean, we can't just what if this thing to death. We have to follow uh, the, the process or we'll get what we're getting right now. Uh, but the problem is, is no one's willing to do anything about it. Um, no one's willing to do tit for tat, which is what we need right now, uh, because all, all the Republicans are doing is saying, whoa, slow down there, Democrats. We'll, we'll catch up to you in a little bit, but slow down. The reason why people are voting for Donald Trump is not because that they put him on some pedestal like Jesus Christ. They're putting the reason they're voting for Donald Trump is he's the inverse of that in the sense that he's putting them on a pedestal. And for once in their lives, commoners are put on a pedestal that they've never been put on before. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate that. Um, that's that, that that's a diver- I mean, that's not a diver- that was a kind of a detour at the last second there about why they're voting for Trump. I mean, I think we. I mean, there's a great debate about why people are voting for Trump. I mean, I, I think I've got a a reason. Jim has a reason. Rev has a reason. Josh has a reason. The point I'm trying to, and I know it's a hypothetical. And it's an extreme hypothetical, but I am very interested in what degree of immunity the Supreme Court are willing to give to a president of the United States once he leaves office. And I think Trump makes a valid case when he says, 
Well, I mean, if you don't give me blanket immunity, the second I leave office, they're coming after me with some they'll criminal find charges. Something. They'll find something. A decision I made that or I did a phone crim- call I made. Yeah, and I, I think that's a valid point. But, but I still have trouble. And I know it's a hypothetical, and I understand it's extreme. But, but in the United States of America, some are arguing that once a president reaches in a drawer, pulls out a handgun, shoots his political rival dead, that law enforcement has no say. I mean, that is to be taken up by the, the impeachment process administered by the House and Senate. That's just crazy for me to get my head around. We need Jonathan Turley or Andy McCarthy to create some clarity on that extreme hypothetical example. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. You know what, Josh? I'll take some of that blanket immunity. Oh, okay. yeah. I mean, I'll come clean on everything I've ever done <laughs> if I can get some of that blanket immunity. I just think it's an interesting, I mean, the Supreme Court will basically decide to what extent or degree a former president has when he becomes a private citizen relating to immunity. I think John Decker nailed it. We don't have clarity now. I mean, does he get blanket immunity or no immunity at all? We know neither is the right answer, but somewhere there is the immunity provided to a former president. And I think there's an interesting hypotheticals to play out uh, in that. We're talking about pulling a gun and shooting a political rival. Uh, Law enforcement doesn't storm the room, but rather you go see Chuck Schumer and you start the process of impeachment. I mean, that's just kind of crazy to consider and think about. But the Supreme Court, we believe, will provide some clarity as to what sort of immunity a former president has once they become a private citizen. Drew McKissick, SCGOP chair, co-chair of the National Party, is with us. Good morning, sir. How are you? Man, I'm doing well this morning. How are you? I am doing well. So i got to be a hard-hitting journalist here. Now, you ready? You got your big boy pants on today? (laughs) Have at it. Okay, there's a shake-up. And you are implicated in that shakeup. You are a part of that shakeup. What are you been kind to us? Implicated be, is the right. Well, word. implicated is the wrong word. You're right. I, I'm implicated. You're, you're you're more. You're um. You're associated. Involved. You're you're involved. There you go. That's a better word. You're involved with what's happening at the national level. My concern is you, and I mean that sincerely. You're a South Carolinian. You've done a good job. You've been very gracious to us here at Wake Up Carolina. I, I want to make sure Drew McKissick gets a fair shake. What do you want to say or not want to say regarding Rona McDaniel agreeing to step down and someone taking her place and a new team being ushered in? So when you go back through history, uh, the nomination process, typically what happens in pretty much every four or eight-year cycle when we have a nom- new nominee coming in is you have some sort of a merger that takes place between the campaign and the RNC. It's a matter of degrees. Sometimes it's, you know, just several folks who will come work in the political department, or maybe somebody from the campaign merges and takes over the finance department uh, because there's a lot of, you know, uh, things involving joint finance agreements and so forth that can be put together between the RNC and the campaign and state parties to raise uh, higher limits of contributions, you know, taking advantage of the campaign finance laws. In some cases, it's uh, legal. In some cases, it can be. Uh, party officials. Uh, so this is the higher degree of that, if you will. Uh, you know, of course, you know, Trump's back and forth with uh, Ronna McDaniel over the last, uh, I'd say, at least year and a half. Um, and, you know, he, 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 she was originally uh, his choice to head the RNC. Uh, and now I know she's talked with him, they've talked, and she's opted to resign so he could put in his old person. 
we've got what's known as a, not officially, but you might as well call it a gender equity rule in the RMC. So you have a chair and a co-chair. The chair and the co-chair have to be of the opposite sex per rules of the party. That's dumb. So That's dumb. Well, I, I'm not going to argue with you. It's, it's been said by a lot of other RNC members that they'd like to change that, but it's just never been changed. It's in the rule. So uh, I'm a lot of things, but I am not a cross-dresser. Excuse <laughs> me of being one. Uh, so when you have a male chair come in, then you're going to have to have a female co-chair. Now, as I understand it, you know, the campaign folks really weren't aware of that uh, until a couple of weeks ago, but it is what it is. So after she put out her notice that she was going to resign, I did the same thing. So I'll resign effectively uh, as co-chair next Friday upon election of my successor. Had a lot of good conversations with the campaign, with the leadership. I actually spoke to the president himself. Uh, and yet the, the bottom line is I will still be working with the RNC. I'll still be involved, pretty much doing the same thing I'm doing right now. Uh, and maybe some other things because of the campaign and the realities and the needs there, and wear a different hat, have a different title. So you know, I'm, we're all on the same page. Uh, and look, and this, this happens because you want, or the nominee would want, to make sure that the RNC and his campaign, her campaign, whichever it may be, are on the same page strategically, et cetera, et cetera. Resources aren't being wasted or duplicated and so forth. Um, so it's understandable. And, uh, you know, so you, you might say in that sense this is sort of a collateral damage type thing, but the rule is the rule, so we'll just keep smiling and go forward. Good deal. Team player, we appreciate that, and I want you in the middle of it, um, and I mean that sincerely. And I, and I know this, Drew, you don't want to say too much, but, I mean, it, it's all dependent on whether he wins in November or not. And if he wins in November, I mean, there's a big celebration. If he doesn't win, there's a reevaluation. Is that fair? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I okay. mean, in, in you know, January of next year would be when the RNC would convene for its winter meeting, and that's when you know elections are held for full terms. And whatever happens in the election will obviously you know have a big impact on what happens at that meeting. Drew, let, let's let's go down this if you don't mind. I'm going to get your take on it. I've got an opinion, but mine is not as well. I guess I'm kind of half pregnant with being an insider, but I'm not uh, an insider. I wouldn't be as popular <laughs> on the radio if I were perceived to be. An insider. My crowd doesn't like insiders. They like outsiders, so I maintain my outsider um, status. But I hear all this talk within the ranks of our of our tribe, so to speak. And I'm told over and over by the media there are 30 percent of Republican voters who, under no circumstance, will vote for Donald Trump. I don't buy that. And Drew, I went I back and looked at the 1980 presidential primary that involved a pretty controversial at the time uh, guy named Ronald Reagan. And Reagan got about 7.5 million votes. George H.W. Bush got a little better than 3 million. So it was somewhere around 70-30. Now, now Reagan did nominate George H.W. to be his vice president. And I don't understand what happened on the convention floor and who pulled whose string and how they aligned that. But, but how do we, if Drew McKissick is one of the architects of the RNC, what, what does reaching out to the 30% who would rather somebody other than Donald Trump involve? Well, yeah, it's, it's a lot of different things, and sometimes it's relationship and people-specific, and sometimes uh, – well, well let's, let's go to the idea of a vice president, for, for instance. I mean, that's one of the things that's sometimes used as sort of a way to bring in a different – you know, a, the other crowd, if you will, for lack of a better way to put it. Uh, you've got, so let's say, three main reasons and a fourth small one of or the rationale that you use to pick a vice president. Uh, it's sometimes demographic. So let's say, you know, 
let's say, uh, you know, Christy Noel, you know, governor of uh, uh, South Dakota. Uh, sometimes uh, it is uh, ideological. So think Mike Pence, you know, with uh, Trump back in 16. Uh, great pick in that sense of bringing, you know, conservatives into the party, who, you know, on the far right, who are a little leery of Trump or, let's say, religious conservatives, et cetera. Uh, and uh, then you've got a geographic pick, uh, someone who you bring in because you want to be able to win a state. And then the fourth small reason would be just because, well, let's think Dick Cheney, you know, you're a right-hand man, you don't have to worry about running later on down the road and, you know, that, that kind of thing that you know, George W. Bush could trust. The geographic pick, I think, though, is the one that's at the top of the list for me, and that's Virginia, and that's Governor Glenn Youngkin. Uh, you know, that's 13 electoral votes, state of Virginia. We haven't won in four election cycles. To me, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and Glenn Youngkin is also a conservative. He is loved and appreciated by conservative grassroots in Virginia and also by the business community. So in some ways, he's also kind of an ideological pick. So sometimes you'll use that as a way to reach out in the olive branch to, you know, a certain community within the party and make them more comfortable with getting on the team. So it's, it's a big piece of the puzzle. Do America firsters, when you say Yunkin, I'm going to be gut level honest. My, mm-hmm. my reaction is very competent, very able, has done some cool things in Virginia. Not sure he's America first enough for me. Does that have to be considered? Uh, well, so, you know, but, if you're talking about reaching out and bringing sort of a different segment on board, you know, do you need any more America first than Donald Trump? I mean, <laughs> but don't you, but, but Drew and, and see, this is where I think, well, I mean, this is my theory and I'd love to get your take on this. My theory yeah. is that some people have convinced themselves that Trump has brought all these new people to the Republican party. And I'm not sure of that yet. I think a lot of those folks are Trump voters and and we've got to work our butts off to make them Republican voters. Do you buy that? Well, to partly. Uh, and look, you're you're there in the PD. You know a lot of those people who have come uh, to vote Republican. I would say since fifteen and sixteen when Trump came on the scene. Uh, I know since I've been state chairman since seventeen, the growth that we've seen in rural areas there. Uh, I know of other down-ticket Democrat elected officials in that area. They're thinking really hard about switching parties in this cycle. Uh, others already have. Uh, you know, some of those, I'd say, yeah, it's Trump-specific. Trump a lot of them, I would say, it's issue-specific. Now, those are issues that Donald Trump did talk a lot about and has talked a lot about in 15 and 16 and going forward. Uh, so, you know, over the course of you know, political scientists have a term called political realignment. You know, that there's like an election or one or two elections where just things just radically shift in a different direction. In the South, we've had more of a creeping realignment, or let's go even call it a political evolution. You know, these people who are voting Republican for president, but then splitting their ticket somewhere else down the ballot. And that line where they were splitting their ticket has just kept getting lower and lower slowly and steadily over time. A lot of those folks. They vote Republican for president, but they're voting Democrat for county council or whatever because they go to church with the guy that related to him. There's his wife's brother-in-law or, you know, whatever, relationships. But they're conservatives, conservative Democrats, conservative independents. Uh, I think issues play a big role in that. Let's play chess a second. I mean, you're better at this than I am, but I can fake it for a little while. I, I believe you talked about some of the rural, and I've read all the data. I mean, the rural areas are voting overwhelmingly in favor of America first. I mean, they're – uh, they're solidly in Trump's camp, and they're trending even further. 
that way. The combination of that, the combination of what I'll call the the rural Democrat becoming a America first voter, hence a Republican voter, combined with what the General Assembly did with voting integrity. And I'm talking about we've seen a precipitous decline in absentee votes for Democrat candidates that I think you're right. I think some Democrats will say, thank you, but no thank you. I mean, in this new era of voting integrity, and they're going to, I mean, I think it's $5,000 fine and a five-year in prison felony if you caught tampering with ballots. I think some of these races are going to be a lot more closely. I think Republicans can consider running in places that historically they've not considered uh, being a competitive race. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, think counties like, you know, Chesterfield, Dillon County, uh, you know, a lot of those places in the PD that have, you know, by and large been Democrat for, you know, almost 150 years other than up until here very recently. Um, you're exactly right. And, and keep in mind that election integrity bill we passed uh, two years ago or two and a half years ago. Um, we created that early voting period, 12 days of early voting in person, three locations per county, which cannot be changed. You have to have the photo ID, et cetera. In exchange for that, we clawed back on the excuses for mail-in absentees, which lend itself to that process you just alluded to. And in 2020, we had half a million mail-in absentee ballots cast in South Carolina. After we passed that law in 22, we had 40,000 mail-in absentee ballots cast in South Carolina. So those folks got pushed to the early, secure, early voting process. It's much, much better for the idea of election integrity and people having confidence in the elections. Drew, and like you said, pushing back on the fraud. Have, has any swing state, I mean, I know Georgia's cleaned up some things. Have Pennsylvania or Michigan or Wisconsin or Arizona or Nevada have those states addressed in any way, shape, or form what South Carolina and Georgia have? Some, but, you know, it's, again, it's state-specific. So you've got three different tracks that we've been on because of this. In places where we can make legislative changes, we have worked to do that and have done that. You know, where we have control of the legislature and the governor in those states. Uh, where we don't, it's been lawsuits. So the RNC all by itself is involved in 78 election integrity lawsuits right now. Uh, most are offense. So, you know, taking a cute page out of the Democrat playbook, going on offense, suing local county election commissions for, so let's say, not cleaning up voter rolls or other things of that nature. And then the third track is, if these are going to be the rules of the game, we've got to be better than they are. Uh, Nevada's a place like that. Uh, California's a place like that. Uh, to a degree, things are not probably not going to change. Uh, we're going to have to roll with what's in place in, in Michigan and in Pennsylvania. Um, so it just involves being better at that process that's in place there than they are. Uh, and because, you know, you can't make changes until you win political power. Well, explain last question. My wife and I were at, a, I'm, I'm a life for Gamecock. I'm a glutton for punishment. It's been a lot of heartache, a little bit of celebration. <laughs> you and me both. Yeah. But, but I remember one year we had a whiteout. No, nah, I'm sorry. A blackout. No, nah, it was a whiteout. I nah, might've been a blackout. Anyway, Spurrier brings his gators to Columbia. And Lou Holtz is our coach. Got two legendary coaches. I mean, Williams and Bryce is packed. It's excited. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think halftime it's 50 to 3. And, um, you know, Spurrier's kind of heavy. Okay, you remember the game I'm talking about. My wife oh, yeah. looked at oh, me yeah. and said, I don't know anything about football, but we ain't winning this one. I mean, it, it's halftime. We can go. I mean, I, you know a lot more about football than I do, but we ain't winning this one. It's time to go home. Isn't it time for Nikki Haley to come home? Uh, yes. I mean, at a certain point, candidates, campaigns, they got to do a little bit of soul searching. And, you know, are you doing this at a certain point more for yourself or for the party? 
and our chances to win in November. Those are things that have to be thought about. Uh, consequences are high. They matter. Uh, and, you know, when you've gone basically, well, 0-5 now, uh, I mean, and you're looking at every state ahead of you, and Trump is up by anywhere from 30 to 50 points in every single one of those states, it's just starting to look a little bit more about you now. So I think she does need to do some reevaluation really quick, in my opinion. And, Drew, in the only state the Democrats had something to do on the same day in Michigan, the lead went from 20 to 40. I mean, that's kind of where we are with Republican primary voters. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And like I said, she needs to consider that. Well said. Thank you, Drew. Appreciate all the insight. And um, and I'm absolutely. glad that you're good because we need you to be good. <laughs> yes, sir. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, my man. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937. Our number, someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Verd in Marlboro County. Good morning. Good morning. How y'all doing? Hey, Bird. Good. Uh, a couple things. Uh, listen to Drew talking about the pick of the vice president. Uh, I've been saying for over a year, I felt like it should be Christy known because of uh, the help that we need and have needed for many election cycles with the suburban uh, women. I met her a couple of years ago. Just a great life story, a great governor. Uh, She's easy very, on the eyes, tall. too, Bird. She might be too easy on the eyes. <laughs> no, you're right about that too. And, uh, great, great, great Second Amendment person. Uh, but anyway, I just think she would be a perfect pick. Uh, we need, we, you know, we we lost the suburban women in every election cycle, and I think she could really pick pick it up. And uh, the other thing is talking about President Trump, and you know, the Constitution says that the Congress has the articles of impeachment to bring charges against the president if they act. Uh, uh, civil or uh, or criminal, and you know that's what happened in the phone call that was made to Ukraine. The Democrats thought they had President Trump on something criminal, and they brought out articles of impeachment against him. I think the Supreme Court's going to weigh in on that. That the uh, the immunity clause uh, for the president is covered under the Constitution, and Congress has the right to address that. Now, what do you think about that, Ken? Well, that, that's interesting, and that's why I'm so interested in this case. What, what is their interpretation of the extent? a former president or current president has uh, with immunity. That That's kind of interesting. Yeah, and that's, once again, I don't think, thank you, Bert, appreciate it. I don't think, okay. um, I mean, I don't think the president has blanket immunity. I mean, Trump's saying that, but that's what he's got to say. I mean, he's positioning himself for the eventual debate at the U.S. Um, Supreme Court. I don't think, I mean, I'll give an example. Let, let's go here for a second, and then we'll go to the next call. Jim made a very interesting point. But the Constitution covers that. I mean, you know, the impeachment process. But then he said Democrats will do whatever it takes. So let's say that a Democrat president pulls a gun out of the Resolute desk, shoots his political rival, and instead of law enforcement storming into the Oval Office, he, they call Chuck Schumer. And the Democrats are in the majority. And the Democrats are given a chance to vote to impeach a Democrat president or not. I mean, we, we just said the Democrats do whatever it takes. Right? I mean, I, I'm drawing out a hypothetical. I mean, this would be extreme. But under Jim's scenario, he says the Democrats will do anything. We know they will. They always have. They always will. And the Republicans better figure out a way to combat that on equal footing. 
So, so the Democrats are in charge of the House and Senate, or Senate. Let's just say the Republicans are in control of the House. It is what it is today. And Biden pulls a gun out, and he shoots somebody with the gun. And instead of law enforcement, the impeachment process begins. And the House impeaches President Biden. And it goes to the Senate for conviction. And the Senate does not convict. And we've got a murder in the White House. We've got a known murder. I mean, is that, you see where I'm headed? I mean, that, that's yeah, an extreme. I just can't imagine. Well, I, mean, that I, mean, they I know wouldn't, you can't imagine. I know you can't convict. imagine. Can you imagine a judge in New York would find Donald Trump $360 million <laughs> and $100,000 a day? That's far-fetched, too. But they did it. Can you imagine that, um, I mean, we could rename, take a load off Fonnie to Gorilla Grip. Can you imagine that she would do what she's doing in Atlanta or Hot Atlanta? <laughs> I know. Uh, Nothing just, would I mean, surprise well, me. Well, it'd be okay, but you're surprised by that? I mean, if Joe Biden took a gun and shot a Republican and the, the Republican House impeached and it went to the Senate for conviction, do you honestly believe the Democrats would convict? In that scenario, yes. Okay. I do. I don't. <laughs> I don't. I'm, I'm sorry. I don't believe they would. You know, they should have never been in there to begin with. They probably pulled a knife on him. <laughs> <laughs> and Joe's old and feeble, and, you know, when they pulled the knife, he shot him because he had to. That there would be some political excuse that they would use. I know that's extreme, but but that's – we've gotten ourselves in a very extreme political mm-hmm. climate today. And that's, I know you're using murder, you know. Well, that's the most extreme as, as, example. Yeah, exactly, as an example. Well, I mean, they asked Trump in the trial. They asked his lawyers in the trial, and the lawyer said, we think the impeachment process speaks to that. It does. I mean, constitutionally, it speaks to that. Josh, do you believe that a Schumer-led Senate would convict Joe Biden and remove him from office if he shot a Republican? Probably not. Okay. I mean, I, I'm, I'm just telling you. I don't believe they would throw him out of office. Despite, we know that he would, or uh, is there, okay, is there a scenario that the impeachment would get trumped by law enforcement? Now, now, we're really digging into the weeds here. Mm-hmm. But, but the, the point I'm trying to make is Jim said exactly right. You know, the impeachment is why we've got the, the impeachment process is, is there to take care of things like this. But then he said, but the Democrats will do anything. And until the yeah. Republicans decide to do anything, they're not going to compete on equal footing. Yeah, I, I can see the scenario that they would impeach and remove. And then as soon as he's removed and not president anymore, handcuffs go on and you're going to jail tried for murder. That's a reasonable proposition. That's the most reasonable proposition. I'm arguing politics doesn't operate on reason and logic at times. Let's go to the phone. Uh, Joe in Hartsville. Hello, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. Basically, what you're talking about is rule of law, which we no longer have. So you might as well just throw the Constitution out because the Constitution says if the president commits a crime, a crime, not a administrative whatever, a crime, he should be impeached by the House, convicted by the Senate, removed from office, and prosecuted because he can't be prosecuted while he's in office. That's plain and simple. No longer, We no longer have a Constitution. I mean, they don't pay it no attention 
the three things of Americans' top gripes is caused by the government. But what worries me more than anything else is 75% or over 75% of the American people do not care. That was alarming to me when on Saturday when you're off, what, 23% of Republican voters went to the polls and voted in the primary. 5% of Democrats went to the polls and voted. The apathy is amazing. So when people wake up and they have troops rolling into their cities and you can't do anything, your money's frozen. And, you know, it's, it's extreme, I know, but that's what happens when people get so apathetic that they don't care. And I try to wake people up, but I talk to 12 people specifically because they're the loudest in our area, and none of them went to vote on Saturday. So I I don't know. I, I wonder sometimes what the end is going to be and whether or not I wasted 26 years of my life. Y'all have a good day. Thank you. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Music play. Back in a few. I think there should be a federal law. In fact, I think there is a state law in New Jersey that says if you start playing Born to Run, you got to play all of it, Josh. <laughs> Just so you know. I mean, you get away with that in South Carolina, but you can't play bits and pieces of Born to Run in the state of New Jersey. They will put you in jail, and you don't have immunity protection. And surprisingly, I'd be okay with that. Now, let's go to the ball. That's, <laughs> the, that's the one I like. I know you would. That's the one I like. Hey, uh, Glenda in Florence, good morning. You're on. Hi. Uh, yes, during uh, President Trump's term, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said that a president has all power. Now, I don't know if she meant that only Democrat presidents had it, but she did make that statement. So uh, I don't know if it uh, you know, applies to Trump, but she did make that statement. Thanks. Thank you. They seem to interpret the Constitution one way for Republicans <laughs> and another uh, for Democrats, but I mean that, that's I mean there's an interpretation required of all. It'll be a very interesting legal exercise that the court takes itself in finding, with clarity, what degree a president or former president has immunity. Let's go to the phone. Tony in Loris. Good morning. Hey, good morning. Uh, I just wanted to piggyback on a caller earlier about uh, presidential immunity and what he was talking about, you know, how, how you get rid of a president and prosecute him. And I know uh, Ken was saying that, you know, if a uh, president kills somebody, law enforcement should be able to go in and just arrest him right there. But the problem is the president. I, no, no, can, can, I, can I clarify that? I said I, I can't get my head around the fact that that's not the case. I got you. I got you. Okay. And, and that's that's understandable. But you have to look at it as a president, when he is in office, he is not just an ordinary citizen. He is the leader of the country, the leader of the free world. And as that previous caller was saying, there's a process to remove him and to prosecute him. And you get rid of a president when he commits high crimes and misdemeanors. 
Uh, and if he was to pull a gun in the Oval Office and kill somebody, that is a high crime. So the process is to impeach him, and then try him in the Senate. And if he is found guilty, he's kicked out of office, and then you bring in law enforcement. But to do it any other way, you're just, you know, inviting chaos, which is what the Democrat and Democrats are doing now. I mean, they're wanting to prosecute him for things while he was in office that the only way you can do that is to impeach him and to try him while he is in office. And you got to you got to look at it as well. If he was to pull a gun and, and to shoot somebody dead, do you really think the Senate is not going to convict the man and remove him from office? I mean, liberals, Democrats, they, they may do that, you know, the way they're going now. But, it, it, you know, that that's really, you know, not a not a viable option. It really wouldn't I mean, you happen, say it's so. not. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't have any idea what the Democrats would do if given that decision to make. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it. I am aware of what happens. I mean, I understand the Constitution. I understand the community. I mean, I, I, I'm well aware of what happens, A, B, C, D. The point I try to make is I can't get my head around in America. So, so, so in other words, if, if, the, if two political rivals go into the Oval Office to argue with the president about something policy-related, and this is an extreme hypothetical, but I think there, there's, there's some degree of understanding we have about what happens, the president gets so bothered. He's Andrew Jackson. <laughs> he gets he gets so upset. He pulls out a gun and he shoots one of his political rivals. The political rival that he didn't shoot returns fire, shoots and kills the president. Shoot and injures the president. Law enforcement storms the Oval Office and arrest the guy that's not the president but doesn't arrest the guy that is the president. I mean, that's kind of where, I mean, I know it gets complicated, <laughs> but that is a scenario. I mean, that, that would be the most extreme example imaginable. I mean, that's like drawing a royal flush a hundred times in a row on a slot machine. It ain't going to happen. But, but it's not impossible. It's not humanly nor mathematically impossible for something like that to happen. You're just trying to test the boundaries. What, what I'm trying the... to test is how political would it get? And I go back to Jim's comments. Jim said the Democrats will do whatever it takes to stay in power. Does that include giving someone who is on their team a pass for killing another human being? I don't know. We've never been faced with that. Let's go to the phone. Dina and Latta, good morning. You're on. Hi. Um, I just wanted to chime in also. I agree with you that the president should not have blanket immunity. Um, with that being said, I think he should have immunity for challenging the election. The Democrats have been doing it for years, and I might be exaggerating, but I think Gore disputed the election all the way up until the inauguration date with those chads. Um, Trump also stated multiple times that people should go peacefully to the Capitol. I'm not sure how he could be charged for an erection or even considered for that when he didn't tell them to go in the building, especially after the Capitol Police were inviting them in and walking them around. <clears throat> if you listen to Bongino, he's laid it out pretty good that the only reason that, uh, they went after him for the call to, to 
Zelensky was because he was looking into their shenanigans. And I also believe that he had the right to ask Kemp if there were any additional votes because something was fishy about that whole thing. But then um, also for the documents, he had every right to take them. Whether or not he declassified them properly or not, I don't know. But Biden knew and was told by the person at the archive that he was not allowed to take any documents. And he and that was addressed in the her report. If you read further into it, also I think her filed that report trying to help Biden from being uh, uh, charged or whatever for the documents. And then my final thought is, you know, there's a lawsuit filed now against the DHS and Mayorkas for the killing of that young lady in Delaware by that MS-13 that they let in. So, you know, if I set up a robbery and somebody gets killed, then I would be charged for murder, as I should be. So, therefore, Biden should be charged for uh, facilitating this whole thing with all these young people getting killed by these illegals. That's all I have. That's a lot. Thank you. Appreciate that. I got a confession to make. I mean, at times, I'm hoping somebody will get onto my game, but nobody has, so I got a confession to make. I gave the most extreme example to try and illustrate how ridiculous the charges against Trump are. I mean, I went to that extreme because I think there's a fair debate to be had about, wow, man, really? I mean, you mean to tell me the press? No, I mean, I, I did that to try and illustrate. That's what the immunity clause speaks to. Some of the nonsense is nonsense. I mean, so, so some of the charges against Trump are so ridiculous in nature that I do think they qualify. And, and I, I've kind of, I've evolved here. I, I, I understand it better. I mean, I always understood what the previous caller and Joe said about the pro I understand the constitution speaks to that, but, but I think understanding some of the nuances and, and, and some of how you get to where you are, I mean, there has to be, I don't want to say it's, um, well, you got to think about the year 2024 and it was not the year, you know, the constitution was, was written in what, 1786 or nine or whenever it was. I mean, shortly after the revolutionary war is when our leaders said, Hey man, we need some guiding lights. We need some documentation here about what we're, uh, what we're going to do and what's good and what's bad and what's right, what's wrong. Uh, some of the guardrails that we talk a lot about on this show. What I've tried to do is offer the most extreme example to illustrate in a weird way how ridiculous some of these charges really and truly are. The, the phone call helped me find 3,500 or 35,000 more votes. I mean, if, that's not a crime. I mean, that's absurd. I mean, that's lawfare. That's a witch hunt. I mean, that's going after a guy that you just don't like on the political scene any longer. And and I think Joe nails it when he says, how many people genuinely care? The, the better question is how many people genuinely understand? I mean, I think there's a casual careness that people have, but a disinterest. I mean, it takes a little work to go read and understand. And we just seem to not be very interested in reading and understanding. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Yeah, the confession, I was trying to use a real extreme example to kind of illustrate it may do all of us good to list some of the charges. You know, what is he dealing with in New York? What is he dealing with in Florida? What is he dealing with in Georgia? What is the status of all of these um, decisions that are going to be that are going to be made probably some pre-election, some uh, post-election, the interesting part in all of this is the the support he garners gets larger and more intense <laughs> when Trump walks in a courtroom. I mean, that, that's, that's the craziest thing you can imagine 
I mean, it's really, it's really not Trump on trial. It's the U.S. government on trial. It's the U.S. judicial system on trial. I mean, I don't know what Trump's favorables are. I don't look much. I don't know what his approvals are. I would imagine him being as controversial as he is. You've got, you know, some intensely for you, some intensely against you. But but I, I think we're missing the moment. I think the moment that we're talking about now is not Donald Trump having all these legal issues, but is the trustworthiness of the federal government hanging by a thread? Has the government lost the moral authority to dictate what people can and cannot do? How frustrated are people with the government? How resentful? That's probably a better word. How resentful people are of the um, of the federal government. So to me, it's not as much Trump on trial as it is these power structures, these institutions of authority that we've historically kind of leaned on and trusted in. And I think they're on trial far more than Trump is. I mean, Trump's a rascal. Trump's a scandal. I mean, even the most ardent Trump supporter will admit he's somewhat of a scandal and a rascal. Um, and I, I don't mean that derogatorily or complimentary. It is what it is. Rez nodding his head. You're right. I mean, he's, yeah, he's, a, he's kind of a rascal and a scandal, but, but he's not an institution. And I think when you have a rascal and a scandal and an institution, there should be without certainty, I mean, without any uncertainty, we trust this, you know, uh, institution. We don't trust this guy. And I would argue the country is pretty deeply divided on who they trust in these affairs. Take a break. Back in a few. I got invited to Dancing with the Stars, and I remember saying, I'm not a star, and I don't know how to dance. I'm not reluctant, and I'm not a hero. I'm certainly not a hero, <laughs> and I'm certainly not reluctant uh, to give my opinion. I read some polling about a month ago that I called BS on. I mean, it said immigration and inflation are going to be the two central issues of the presidential campaign. I'm thinking to myself, immigration will be a part of it, but inflation will dominate the debate. I mean, it'll be all about gas and groceries and, and what it costs to go on a vacation or go to a college football game. That is going to be the central issue. But, but now I'm looking at it in a different sort of light. Immigration and the illegal immigration issue on our southern border is so important. The presidential candidate and the president himself are going uh, down today. Fox News Radio's Evan Brown is with us this morning from Miami. Evan, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. Good to be back. And it seems to me when we personalize one of these issues, it becomes real. And you see a kid, a young female student at the University of Georgia, horrifically murdered. It's not a, a political issue any longer. There's a face and a story, Eben, that goes along with it. Well, certainly there is. And this is not a unique story. We've been hearing a number of these over the past few weeks where someone is attacked, uh, someone may be killed. Someone might be sexually assaulted. It may the victim may be a child, a minor child, and the the alleged perpetrator is someone who is in the country illegally, has a criminal record, was previously in custody but released, and maybe even more than once. And that is not a tragic occurrence. That's a policy failure. And it's happening enough over and over again, and people are noticing. And there's no real way to make this uh, to, to let's put it this way: anyone who tries to spin this as a as a political thing and try to point it to some uh, other side not doing enough about border security is being met with um, everything from jeers to curse words. 
let's take in point yesterday this this case out of Athens, Georgia, and the uh, the young woman uh, nursing student, uh, Lakin Riley, who was killed while out jogging. Uh, yesterday, the uh, Athens, Georgia mayor tried holding a press conference where he tried to say that Athens was not a sanctuary city because the state of Georgia doesn't have such a thing within its statutes. But this is a mayor and a city that had passed a resolution saying they would not help uh, turn over illegal migrants in their custody to uh, to federal immigration authorities, that they decry the language of Donald Trump about describing uh, a lot of the uh, uh, illegal migrants as being criminals, as being dangerous, uh, that uh, people who did that were uh, creating more problems than, than the migrants themselves, so on and so forth. Uh, and yesterday was called out for that. Uh, the people attending this press conference, members of the general public, residents of the Athens area, were saying, you're a liar. You, meaning the mayor, have blood on your hands. That's a pretty hard thing to say. Uh, and uh, obviously something he didn't want to hear, and he noticeably tried to deflect from it. But uh, you, you could tell he was happy when the conference was over because he couldn't get off that podium quick enough. But, Evan, when, a, when an elected leader is in violation of enforcing a a duly passed statute or law, do they, are they in violation of, I mean, if, if we break the law, we answer and are held accountable. If the right. federal government passes an immigration law and a mayor of Athens says, I don't like that law. In fact, I don't like it so much. I'm not going to enforce that law. Obviously there's a political story, but is there any legality here that comes into play? Well, that's just the big question. I mean, we could turn this around the other side, you know, with, uh, um, with, with uh, Governor Abbott in Texas taking things into his own hand to enforce the border, which technically isn't isn't supposed to be a state uh, matter, but he's doing it anyway, and he's kind of running afoul of the federal government, which has been suing him and or suing the state anyway. Uh, so the, the, this sort this seems to be some kind of gray area, but people are paying with their lives, and uh, again, this points to a policy problem. This is not some random tragic crime that no one saw coming, that no one knew who this person was and didn't know that they were a threat uh, and, and whatnot. This, uh, this young lady was killed, allegedly, by someone who was known to law enforcement in other places, New York, I think specifically, where they had him in custody and let him go, has a history of violence, uh, and is knowingly, no, knowingly in the country illegally and allowed to, allowed to exist within, you know, uh, with some freedom. Uh, in the interior of this country. That is a different policy than what was policy just a few years ago. In fact, it was that policy of, of catch and deport and, and holding fast on the border, not letting people in uh, and, and uh, you know, arresting people and having them turned over to ICE uh, and having them deported. All that was policy up until Joe Biden took office, President Biden took office, and it was one of the first things he undid via executive fiat because it was a Trump policy. Well explained. Eben, thank you for your time, sir. Always um, always a pleasure to have you on the air. Have a good day. You too. And and we, we ended the show yesterday, and I want to touch on this. Um, there are some things that make us politically uncomfortable. As a candidate for office, I knew something about an opponent in the race. And I'm not, I mean, I don't want to be some moral crusader. I'm not somebody who is better than the next person. But I do have this ah, ethical compass and morality compass in my life. I'd like to believe it derives from where I come from. 
and what I was taught as a young person. I had two really good parents. Uh, they they divorced, but they were both really good parents, and they're separate and um and you know different capacities. But but I'd like to believe that every every ethic or moral I have in my life is derived from those early experiences of learning right from wrong. Now it's clouded at times and it gets complicated at times, but I remember, and I don't think Robert would mind me sharing the story. I remember someone reaching out to us about an opponent I had in my race and some extramarital affair they had much earlier in their life. And Robert and I sat down and considered what to do and how to do and where to do and should we do and and we decided not to. And Robert basically said, hey, man, your name's on the sign. I mean, you pay me X number of dollars every month to give you the best advice I can give to poll, uh, the best way I can poll to give you all this data and information. But you got to go home with that. I mean, you got to make a decision. And, and I decided to not go there. I mean, I decided, nah, man, I, 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 don't wanna, I, I just don't like that. I mean, their family has put themselves back together. That was a long time ago. Apparently, she's forgiven him. The kids are okay with it. They figured out a way to move forward. I mean, that was a big stumble in their lives. But but I've often wondered, Rev, what I would have done if I weren't 12 points ahead. I mean, I, right. I'm, I'm interested. If you felt like that information could change it you know, or make a win or lose and, type and I, impact. And I told Robert after the fact, I said, Robert, you know, it was pretty easy for me to say, no, let's don't go there because we were up 12 in the poll. What if we were two down? Does my ethic and moral, and I'm not saying it's the right ethic or the right moral, and I'm certainly not saying it's perfect because believe you me, it ain't. I mean, it is nowhere near perfect. It's the best I can do at that given moment. Um, the Lakin Riley story, is it unethical and immoral, Josh, as a younger person, to make her the central figure in the Georgia presidential election which some believe is up for grabs. I don't. I mean, I think Trump wins Georgia without this story being the Willie Horton of the Mike Dukakis campaign. But there's no doubt if he makes this girl and her tragic death, murder, this, I mean, the, the issue on immigration, and, and there's no way Biden can say I'm tougher on immigration than Trump because the Texas Border Patrol are putting up razor wire and Biden's DEA are cutting it down. Excuse me, Biden's um, Homeland Security are cutting it down. I mean, there, there's no way Biden says I'm tougher on immigration than Trump because he's not as tough as Texas. Texas puts up razor wire. The federal government cuts it down. I mean, that's where we are. So there's no way Biden can argue that I'm tougher on immigration than Trump is. This young girl is dead. Because the Biden administration didn't enforce as aggressively immigration policy as the people of America deserve. I don't want to make, I mean, it's about her because she is a face and she could be my daughter or your daughter or anybody else's daughter who is jogging on a college campus as a college age kid, horrifically murdered, brutalized, disfigured her skull. Is it when we go to ethics and morality? I'm not saying should it be a part of the Georgia election, but but do we have to consider, Josh Rev, the moral and ethics of crossing that line and making someone the reason? I mean, it's tragic. 
I mean, it's tragic beyond belief. But is it fair game? Should it be an issue in the Georgia election come November? I definitely think so. I think that... Uh, you have no trouble with that. Mm, you do. A little... Okay, but, that, 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 oh, I, but I respect only... that. I mean, for you to say, mm, I mean, you're not the kind that says, mm, but you did. And that leads me to believe that, yeah, there's kind of an internal struggle about making her the poster, an example of why you don't vote for Joe Biden. She's a dead young girl. Only out of respect to her family. Bingo. That's my main... But there's got to be some consideration for that, Josh. Of course. But I mean, that, that, that family doesn't want to see their kid on advertisement after advertisement after. I mean, I just think there has to be some moral and ethical ingredient to making that decision or not. And I'm I'm the same. I mean, I think I think the story has to be told as sensitively and uh, as sensitively as you can. But it is a real life example of your opponent's policies and what they what effect they can have. And I think the voters have to know that if they're making a decision, if they're truly somebody who's making a decision between the two candidates, I mean, you, you have to put it out there because it is real. It's, it's, it's terrible and it's terribly painful to even think about. And you have to be respectful of, of her and her family. I, I, I thought about this last night. My daughter is a junior in college. My daughter occasionally runs around the campus in Columbia. And if the Trump campaign came to me, and said, look, out of respect, we want to come sit down with you and tell you what our plans are. What would I say? And I honestly don't know. I mean, I I don't know what I'd say. It's easy to speculate. I mean, it's easy to sit behind this microphone and say, hey, all of us should do this or nobody should do that. But, but, I mean, this is, I just think it has to be, I hope the Trump campaign will reach out to the family and and agree to kind of at least involve them in whatever decision they choose. It, it, Rev is, is right, and Josh is nailing it. I mean, the Biden immigration policy has something to do with why this girl is dead. I didn't say Biden has blood on his hands. I mean, I'm not ready to say that, but the Biden administration's immigration policy is part and parcel to the reason this young girl is dead. And they must be held accountable in some way, shape, or form. And if that means winning in Georgia without question, I think we're all agreeing it has to be considered. I think the voters have to know that information. But you would agree it does. It leaves politics and kind of um, it drifts out in the world of morals and ethics. Oh, it does. Okay. And yeah. that's that's what makes it so complicated yeah. for me. And I go back to my personal situation. It was easy for me to say, hey, man, I'm a good moral and ethics, and I don't want to hurt that family, so let's not run that ad. But if I'm too down, if I'm too down in the poll, am I as moral and ethical as I profess to be? Probably not. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Florence. Hi, Joe. You're on. Uh, good morning, guys. Uh, did you happen to see that father of five who uh, approached the mayor of uh, of Athens who was trying to squirm out of, uh, you know, this the, the kind of the responsibility for the, the death of, uh, of, of this young woman? I did. Yeah. Well, and and I, and I thought I thought he was great, and the the fact that the the media and and some of the 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 audience kind of supported him that was really good. And he was on Jesse's show later that night. But there was another young woman in I think it was Maryland, an autistic woman who was raped and and killed in a trailer park by one of these illegal immigrants. And the mother 
of this woman who I've seen on some of the news shows, especially recently, is suing uh, the government for like two or three hundred million dollars in, in some sort of, you know, accessory after the fact type of, uh, litigation. But I, I think that's probably a, a good strategy that that any of these tragedies that are, are happen at the hand of uh, the illegal immigrants, I think we need some sort of, uh, you know, class action or some kind of serious financial, uh, you know, judgment to kind of get these these folks' attention. Um, and, and, and I did have one question because I, I dropped out of listening for a little while. Um, as far as I know, doesn't uh, the president, um, like, wasn't President Trump the president until January 30th? It would have been so around that words, date. I don't remember 20th. the exact date. Twenty third, twenty. It's somewhere around there. Around the twenty. Yeah, mid to end of January. January. So, so on. But but wasn't he not a former president? But what wasn't he a sitting president on January sixth? So I mean, wouldn't his immunity not be kind of after his presidency, but during his presidency? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's something the the courts will debate. Okay. Yeah, because to me that that makes. That makes a, a huge difference, just like your point about, you know, uh, Trump being president with classified info and and, uh, you know, Biden being vice president. I, I think sometimes the the main the main point of argument seems to be totally ignored by the the media and, and, the, and the courts and these these you know, left wing prosecutors. Okay, well, thanks so much, guys. Thank uh, you. Appreciate that. Eight, eight, listening. Yeah, thank you. Eight, four, three, six, six, one. 0937 is our number. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone is on the phone. Let's go there. Mike in Darlington. Hello, Mike. Hey there. Uh, I wasn't going to call, but I, I just have to comment on this Lake and Riley thing because it's so, so heart-wrenching that this uh, young woman, uh, obviously a hard worker, had good grades, uh, focused, was uh, getting ready to get on the field of life and make a contribution to society as a, as a nurse. That was uh, and and then this monster who should not have been in the the country at all, and apparently zipped from down at the Mexican border up to New York and then down to, got arrested a couple of times and then zipped down to Georgia and for no reason I, I i i know of bashes this uh young woman's head in and takes away everything she's going to be that and and not just from her family and friends but from what i can see as a contributor to society to the state of georgia to uh, to humanity at large and uh I, justice has to be done and this has to be stopped because if someone was releasing rabid dogs into every com uh, uh, community in the country, I think someone would go around and uh, hinder them and maybe uh, confine them and keep them from uh, doing that anymore. And that's what our country is doing. These unvetted immigrants, uh, that that is criminal on the face of it. It's, it's very and malicious. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. I've asked this question. I mean, there, there are liberals out there that disagree with the Trump policy on immigration, but what sane person believes that what we have today is okay? 
I mean, what, what, what? I mean, if, if you are a political hack, just admit you're a political hack. And I can get hackish on some things. There are people that defend it all the time. Of course there are. I mean, they're, they're liberal nuts that defend what, I mean, it really and truly, the reason you appear to be nutty is Trump wanted one thing, so you must want something else. I mean, it really goes back to this weird morality that some have about Trump. Trump is so bad that if he says the sky's blue, I got to say it's green. I mean, if Trump says the southern border has to be closed, then I've got to say, no, it doesn't. Forget rational and or rationale and forget, you know, what, what is reasonable. No, no, Trump said X. I must say Y. And that's scary. And, and I've, I've asked this question of some liberal friends. What sane person believes that the situation and circumstance on our southern border is good for America? I mean, it's horrible for America. It's terrible for America. It's dangerous for America. And I said earlier that I'm not sure Biden has blood on his hands, but it's close. I mean, it's extremely close. Now, I don't say that to be provocative. I mean, I try to play at a hypothetical about shooting somebody in the, in the Loval office, but that's being provocateur. I mean, I'll agree to that. I mean, I, that, that, the likelihood of that happening is, is 10,000 trillion to one. The likelihood of a female University of Georgia student jogging around campus, getting accosted and killed by an illegal immigrant is not one in a trillion. I mean, it's nowhere near one in a trillion. I'll tell you this. I mean, I'm to the age in my life, I'm aware of my surroundings more. I mean, I kind of pay attention, and I try to not get myself in, in harm's way despite going to the gym and setting all kind of senior records at my gym. I mean, I still don't want trouble from young bucks. You know what I mean? And I've, I've gotten myself at a couple of places that have made me a little bit nervous. And the reason I'm a little bit nervous, and yeah, I'm being stere- I mean, I'm stereotyping. I'll, I'll admit it. I'll readily admit it. They don't look like they were born here, and they don't look like they got much to lose if they did something wrong here. And if you've got that many people coming across the southern border that we know nothing about, nothing about, shouldn't we all be a little bit more nervous than we normally are? I mean, there's an invasion into our country of people. And if you think about this, guys, if I'm Venezuela, if I'm the, the guy who calls the shots in the Venezuelan government and it's costing me X to house all these bad, bad criminals, why not let them out? And the condition of letting them out, hey, you better hightail it to the Mexican-American border, and you better figure out it because they're not securing that border. You better get to America, and you better get there now. Because if we catch you again in Venezuela, I mean, we're going to do some pretty serious things to you. So they open the Venezuelan judge, I mean, uh, uh, prisons and let some of these bad actors out with the demand of you must leave Venezuela. And where is the land of opportunity? I mean, where's the land of liberal la-la? But it's just, it's, it's absurd. And it's interesting, to Rev's point, there are still liberals out there who defend the Biden immigration policy and aren't bothered by the craziness that's happening on our on our southern border. Well, you know, I, they, they equate it to, oh, the Statue of Liberty. Well, I mean, you've heard that. Yeah, but yeah, I've heard the, masses. they're nuts. I mean, they, they're, I mean they, they, there are coherent liberals. There are some liberals out there that have legitimate debate points. If you are a liberal and defend the situation on our southern border, you are a certified nut. And we're in the business of certifying nuts <laughs> around here. Let's go to the phone. Johnny in Hartsville. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, 
I don't know if you guys saw yesterday, New York Post uh, basically just reported it, made the story about uh, about Lakin was that it was her fault um, that she got killed, disfigured um, because that because she was fit, and apparently she tried to fight back, which and they say maybe this guy got mad and figured, you know, I'm just going to have to go farther, more extreme because she's fighting back. And they basically blame her for her own demise. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. I've not seen that clip, but it doesn't surprise me. I did see where the mayor of Athens blamed it on Trump. Yeah, Trump. Well, Charlottesville. Well, something I mean, he or said other. you remember the late, the late, the late teens. We had such an aggressive attitude toward people who didn't look like us, or sound like us, or, or act like us. It's dangerous. I mean, we're living in a more dangerous nation today. Now, the the mayor of Athens also said there's no correlation here. I mean, there's no correlation between illegal immigration and crime in a vicinity or city or, or whatnot. Um, and in the other breath, they're, you know, the mayors of sanctuary cities are saying, it's a little bit like the flight simulator. I mean, the, in the flight simulator, mo- a modern liberal can get in that flight simulator and they can be welcoming. I mean, I, I would imagine on the dashboard of that flight simulator is Ellis Island Statue of Liberty. And we're going to embrace. We're going to welcome. We're going to invite people around the world to come in and experience the goodness of America. And all of a sudden, people take you up on that. But instead of coming through Ellis Island and following our lawful and orderly way to enter our nation, they decide to cut razor wire, jump fences, and swim rivers. And they end up in our nation. We have no idea who they are, what they're about, what they believe in. Are they dangerous or not? We have no idea. And liberals defend and equate that to the Statue of Liberty in Ellis Island, the problem is Lake and Riley's family can't get out of the flight simulator. I mean, so, some of these tragedies that are happening around the country, and, and I've heard somebody say, well, I mean, people get killed by non-illegals. I mean, that's tragic, but the person has a right to be here. The illegal immigrant does not have a lawful right to be in our nation, much less beat someone's skull in. And, and any sane person that sees what's happening on our southern border and not offended by it, it's just bizarre to me. Let's go to the phone. Charles and Lamar, good morning. Good morning. First of all, I just want to make a comment. We have got to stop using the term migrant. These people are illegal aliens. They are in this country illegally, and they are aliens. They are illegal aliens, and it is not fair to refer to them as migrants. Now, you haven't done that, but I know the media are doing that, and uh, and a lot of the politicians, most of the politicians are doing that. But the main reason I called, I had to go to Venezuela this morning, and uh, I'm on the way back to Florence, and I just passed in front of the Shell station on uh, South Main Street in Darlington. I bought gas there on Election Day 2020, November 3rd, 2020, Used my credit card and paid a dollar sixty one point nine. This morning it's three oh nine point nine. Now when I saw the sign I looked in my Rolodex to see if by chance I had William's phone number and I can't find it. But if he's listening, I just wonder what his thoughts are about that. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, Charles. Appreciate they fluctuate. It. That's well, what he says. Yeah. They fluctuate. Don't look under W, you look under F for fluctuates. Um, no, I mean, I, I love Williams, and you know I do. It's just interesting 
when he brings up the gas price and then when he doesn't bring up uh, the gas price. It, it, I mean, it, it, the, the president gets a lot of credit when things are going good economically. The president gets a lot of blame when things aren't going uh, well economically. And we can debate whether this policy did better or that policy uh, did not work as prescribed. I just don't know how any sane person with a, with a reasonable degree of intelligence can defend what's happening on our, on our southern border, except Trump wanted it another way. I mean, build a wall framed that debate. Um, I mean, we did partially build a wall. Mexico did not pay for it. Um, I mean, I'll tell you what I'm in favor of. I mean, I'll say this, and this is a pretty extreme position. Maybe not with our listeners, but probably is out of the uh, in the political ether. I am for bombing some of the cartel drug plants. I mean, I, I'm for mobilizing the United States military, and I'm not saying invade Mexico. But but we can locate some of the uh, some of these drug manufacturing plants, some of where the cartel does its business, and in one what was it called? Shock and all. Remember the um, the Bernard Shaw CNN report, oh, and yeah. we found out later Schwarzkopf said it was the you know the first day of our aggressive was uh, in Baghdad was shock and all. I I would prescribe shock and all. I mean I'm not saying forget Ukraine, forget Israel and Hamas. I don't think America can't forget in varying degrees of responsibility there. I mean, I'm for no more money for Ukraine. Uh, the door's open for Israel and Hamas. But but I would, as a priority, militarily identify, you know, the, the, the hundred or so drug manufacturing operations in Mexico that are run by the drug lords and cartels, and I would destroy. I mean, I would bomb to smithereens, as my grandfather Hell Once, yeah. Uh, famous, <laughs> famously. <laughs> An amen from the back row. That's right. Yeah. In the, in the holiness church. <laughs> Didn't hear that um, hallelujah coming uh, from the back row. But thank you, Josh. Thank you for that. Um, 843-661-0937. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. See, Josh, you and I are proving that we're not anti-military. I mean, we're proving that. We're just far more interested in the drug cartels in Mexico than we are what's happening in Ukraine. And as a matter of priority, <laughs> I just think my family is more at risk by fentanyl or a murderer coming across the southern border than they are what happens in Ukraine and Russia. As a God-fearing Christian, I can't completely dismiss Ukraine I mean, they are my fellow men. I mean, and, and I think Christians, by, by, by believing in the gospel, have to care for humanity in general. So, I, I mean, my heart breaks when I hear that the average soldier is no longer 28 or 9, but rather 42 or 3. My heart breaks. I mean, it does. I mean, I, there's, a, there's a sincere, genuine caring that I have for the Russian soldiers and the Ukrainian soldiers. But my political commitment has to be here. And I think my family is far more threatened by what's happening at our southern border than they are what's happening in Russia and Ukraine. Fentanyl, you know, murderers coming across the, or criminals coming across the, um, the border. And, and I might even, I mean, I don't know if this is, uh, I know that I would launch missile attacks at drug manufacturing plants in in, uh, in Mexico, I might send a few Navy SEALs and Green Beret in the dark of night 
to make sure we did what we needed to do. And I'm going to be as make sure they don't get built again by the same people. Can we just leave it there? Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they may get built by someone, but they won't get built by the same people. I'll just leave it there. I know what you mean. Let's go to the phone. David in the PD. Good morning. And then even back in the day, uh, Castro, he let out all these people from Cuba back in the, I guess, the late 70s. And um, you remember the movie Scarface? I do. I don't know if I will be in part of that, Ken. Uh, and this is part of what this is going on here with Venezuela and this and that. And even, even Bill Clinton, he was the governor in Arkansas back in the MENA days. Uh, he lost. Uh, as being the governor of Arkansas, and he came back on his strategy. He blamed all that on Jimmy Carter, that he left the Cubans, these Cubans in, that created this Scarface. And really, a lot of people live that Scarface uh, uh, lifestyle. But I just want to say something. Charles said, what y'all need to do, we need to have Williams World, because I have lived down in Orangeburg on Cannon Bridge Road. He talks about Orangeburg. It would be a great podcast, Honor of It. We talk about Williams, Honor of It. Amer- America First, uh, Williams could probably agree with that, but not Trump. But imagine that, Honor of It. Y'all go down there and do a podcast down in Orangeburg as part of your market. Love to see him, talk to him. Good man. He's brave enough to call into a talk show. You have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. That's kind of an interesting, he's brave enough to call into a talk show. That, that's kind of an interesting way to put it. Is that the reason that so few listeners participate in, I mean, actively calling in? Is it bravery or not? I mean, I think it's confidence in your opinion. I think it's, uh, man, I'm scared. I'm going to sound too country. Well, you can't use that as an excuse on this show. I mean, you could use it on the Dan Patrick show or the Clay Travis show or the Dan Bongino show. You can't use talking to country as an excuse to not call into <laughs> this feeble attempt at Radio Brigitte. That just doesn't fly here. You cannot be confident enough in your opinion. You cannot be uh, wanting to put your, your opinion out on the street. That's the frustration I have. I mean, if someone said, hey, man, what really bothers you about what you do? Here it is. You ready? The number of people who tell me, I agree with a lot of what you say, but I'm in this business. I agree with about everything you say, but but I don't want to lose customers. I agree with about, I mean, Ken, in all honesty, you didn't go far enough there. I mean, I agree even more extreme than you do about this, but I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to lose myself. I mean, I, I just wish we didn't live in an America that you had to think about that. And, and it's almost like the left has controlled that sense of debate. In other words, I mean, the liberals will defend what's happening on the southern border and not be ashamed of it. And, and if someone is in the wrong sector of the economy and have an opinion similar to mine about, I mean, imagine somebody depending on government to do X, Y, or Z that says loudly and proudly at a dinner party, I think we should bomb the drug cartels. That that would be, an, I mean, if we had a private do, vote. Do what? I mean, if we had a private <laughs> vote. Stick with me, Josh. If we had a secret ballot, what percentage of Americans believe we should bomb the drug manufacturing facilities of the Mexican drug cartels? Maybe 55, 60. Okay, I was going to say 60%. How about if it's not a secret ballot? How about if you got to raise your hand? All in favor, say <laughs> aye. 
I mean, it goes to a third. Yeah. Maybe, maybe 25%. 25, yeah. Because yeah. that's, I don't know, man. That, that guy on the radio is talking about bombing drug facilities. I think we should, but I'm on this board. You know, I, I do this for a living. I work for these people. I, I just think we got to stop that. I mean, that, that, that's political correctness and wokeism. And I mean, you, you want to talk about extremism? I mean, that, that's the extreme censoring of people's opinions. You get punished for your opinion. Well, I mean, and it's, it's, That's it's become, to, become sure. fashionable. But that, the reason I don't Facebook anymore, Rev knows. I mean, I don't waste my time with Facebook anymore, unless I'm wishing my daughter a happy birthday or my wife a happy anniversary. I mean, I want to make sure that people out there know that I love my daughter and I love my wife and I love my kids and I want to do right by my family. But other than that, I don't goof around with Facebook because I know that they've got me on a list. And I know the list is long, <laughs> but, but it's those of us who have opinions contrary to what the liberal media believes. Let's go to the phone. We got about what a minute, two minutes. Yep. Uh, Rajan in Darlington. Hi. Hey guys. Hey, listen, Ken. I agree with you 100. percent It wouldn't be that hard to do. Bomb the hell out of them. I'm serious. I'm an old jarhead, and I believe what we jarheads believe in uh, is killing people and breaking things. And these guys have been doing that to us, albeit not through. Um, a physical war, but they've been doing it through, you know, fentanyl and, and these coyotes and stuff like that. I say, take them all out. Take them out. Just go ahead. Ain't going to hurt nobody. And I'm pretty sure the Mexican government <clears throat> would appreciate it too. Hey, they didn't want to pay for the wall. Let us bomb them. Thank you, Rujan. Appreciate that. Yeah, but I, you got to believe the Mexican government. I mean, I don't know the relationship with what I read. I mean, I don't know, but what I've read, I mean, the Mexican government are run by the drug cartels. I mean, the office holders, you either take the cash or you get your head cut off. Well, I mean, it's easy to say, well, I would be the, you know, I, no, I don't know if you would or not. Uh, crusaders end up with their heads in the middle of streets when you confront the drug lords and drug cartels. You got to consider that. So what if the big bad U.S. of A., instead of focusing its attention on Ukraine and Russia, focus its attention on, and I wouldn't give a warning shot. I mean, I wouldn't send a memo saying, hey, if you don't stop this, I mean, I would just bomb the Mexican drug cartels, um, I would I would actively pursue some of the fentanyl traffic on our. I mean, I know we're actively pursuing it, but we're doing it with with government agencies. I do it with the military. I mean, I, I would deploy our military on that southern border, and I would shoot and kill people who are known to traffic in fentanyl. I mean, we believe a lot of that comes from China. I mean, if if somebody is uh, what do they call them coyotes and runners and mules and whatnot. I mean, you know, I would let it be known that if you agree to be a coyote or a mule, the odds are you're going to get killed, not by a Border Patrol agent, but but an Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine. I mean, we're going to deploy our military at our southern border as if our nation is being invaded by the former Soviet Union. That's the way we're going to protect our border, and you know that's the way we're protecting our border. I wonder how much fentanyl would be trafficked into America. I wonder how much heroin would make its way into America. I mean, there's a demand here, so there's always going to be a, an attempt to supply, and they'll do a lot of other things. And, I mean, I would imagine instead of bribing Mexican government officials, they'd probably attempt to bribe American government officials, and some would probably take the bribe. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.